Blog Talk Radio. Okay, I had a little bit of a connection problem there, but it appears to have been sorted. So, um, yeah, let's hope that there's not any more uh, technical difficulties in the show today. Uh, there might be. There might be, but I'm going to fight them. I'm going to wrestle them. I'm going to wrestle them off you. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you caught it. You probably didn't because apparently we were disconnected there, but I was literally doing a sound check. Um at the time that the show was going on air. And if you were paying close attention, you could have heard a little testing, testing, one, two, three action. So that was interesting. That's a first in secular talk history, like doing a sound a sound check as we're literally coming on air because uh, I was struggling to get everything ready in time. But anyway, um, I really do have a wonderful show for you today. Uh, I did a little bit of I did some extra stories because obviously we'll be taking like a little bit of a Christmas break here. Uh, There won't be a show on Thursday. There will be a show on Monday, though. Um, And then there won't be a show the Thursday after that because it's uh, around New Year's. So uh, there will be a show this Monday, next Monday, but not this Thursday and next Thursday. But I did some extra stories um, because of that, so... We do have a lot to get to, and um, I think you're going to enjoy it, if I don't say so myself. I mean, I'm biased, but (laughs) I think you're going to enjoy it. So I'll lead in with impeachment in a second. Um, The media has also relentlessly been trying to push uh, Amy Klobuchar, and we're on to their shitty little trick. So I'll break that down for you. The YouTube comment section went insky, and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, we have CNBC is just unwilling to accept the fact that Bernie Sanders is one of the leading contenders for the nomination for the Democrats. Um, we have a Republican representative who switched parties and is making a big stink of it. And I have a lot to uh, comment on that with. Uh, I also got a couple Andrew Yang stories in the show today. One of them will rile up his supporters to hate me. The other one will uh, make his supporters like me. You know, I noticed something, man. You just can't win. There's no winning because, and this happens, this happens with Tulsi, this happens with Yang. Like, when I give them credit, oh, my God, Kyle's the best commentator ever. When I uh, say I disagree with them on something, oh, my God, he's smearing them. (laughs) Not every disagreement is a smear. I mean, I hope that that should be obvious, but apparently for a lot of people that's not the case, and they'd rather say that I smeared them no matter what the hell the substance of my uh, criticism was. So... Yeah. Um, Anyway, I digress from that. And uh, later on in the show, we have John Bolton, who's officially lashing out at Trump. And I guarantee you that the media is going to take sides with the neoconservative war criminal John Bolton. And uh, Saudi Arabia was caught red handed doing, I guess we could call it election interference, but definitely at the very least spreading fake news. So anyway, We got a jam-packed show. Let's get started, and uh, we're going to do that with CNN talking about impeachment. Let me set this up for you. CNN here is going to talk about impeachment, and President Trump is apparently demanding an immediate impeachment hearing in the Senate. And some people are taking an interesting line 
in response to that, let's take a look. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi extends an invitation to the president, who is, quote-unquote, mad as hell at her. Speaker Pelosi has just officially asked President Trump to give his annual State of the Union address. That's next uh, February 4th. And it comes hours after reports of the president's anger about being in essentially impeachment limbo. This is what he tweeted. I want an immediate trial, exclamation point. But both the House and the Senate cleared out of Capitol Hill for the holiday, so it's apparent the president is not going to get what he wants before Christmas. And that specifically is to know the House will actually be sending the two articles of impeachment to the Senate, triggering the impeachment trial. Speaker Pelosi has made it clear she has uh, not done that yet, delaying the handoff while expressing concerns if senators will actually hold a fair trial. But Trump supporters, they are calling uh, her out for being unfair. Here's more from Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham. I just left President Trump. He's mad as hell that they would do this to him and now deny him his day in court. The reason they're denying his day in, him his day in court is they know their case sucks. Well, one scholar is speaking out about uh, Speaker Pelosi's delayed handoff. Harvard law professor Noah Feldman testified for the Democrats during the impeachment inquiry, and he says if the House doesn't send the articles over to the Senate, did that mean the president has not technically been impeached? Let me read for you what he wrote in Bloomberg. Quote, if the House does not communicate its impeachment to the Senate, it hasn't actually impeached the president. If the articles are not transmitted, Trump could legitimately say that he wasn't truly impeached at all. Huh? <laughs> www.what.com. I, okay, um, that opinion, who, by the way, is the Democrats' uh, impeachment expert, so it's hilarious that this guy said that. He's the only person, the only expert, who has that opinion. And, I mean, I just want to be clear about this. He made that up. It says, doesn't say that in the Constitution at all, that you have to, you have to send it. To the Senate for him to officially have been impeached. Now, I will admit that the way we use the word impeachment colloquially is like you're, you think of the president being removed from office. And if that's not the case for you, that's definitely the case for me. Every time I heard you know, the word impeachment growing up, my thoughts on it were like, oh, okay, so the president was basically officially rebuked and removed from office. For some, you know, serious wrongdoing. Now, but that's not the way we colloquially use it. Is not what it, you know it actually is. Impeachment is just what they already did, which is passing through the House with a simple majority, um, articles of impeachment. Now, he wasn't, and you know, this is obviously an important distinction. He was impeached in the House. He wasn't impeached in the Senate, and therefore removed from office. And obviously, you know, there's a big distinction there. And whenever anybody talks about this issue, they should be clear and say Donald Trump was impeached in the House, you know, because then it, it's more people will obviously understand better what you're talking about when you say it that way. But make no mistake about it. The opinion of this guy is utterly made up. The idea that, oh, you know, you have to send it to the Senate in order for him to officially have been impeached. Where does it say that in the Constitution? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Constitution. So for him to make that point is a little absurd, especially since every other expert is like, bro, nobody knows what you're talking about. That's not true at all. For him to be impeached in the Senate, 
he has to be impeached in the Senate. For him to be removed from the office, he has to be impeached in the Senate with a two-thirds majority. Um, but he has been impeached in the House. That's just a fact. So it's interesting because, and this is this gets into the heart of this story, which is backwards land. Everybody is all over the place. So the Republicans who have never listened to a word that this um, this Democratic expert has said in their entire lives, they disregarded his whole testimony in Trump's impeachment hearing in, in the inquiry. But now that this guy said something that they like, they're all like, oh, my God, no, 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 this guy's right. This guy's right about, you know, the fact that he technically hasn't been impeached yet. And let's keep talking about that. Let's keep focusing on that because it's exculpatory of their man, President Trump. So it's just sheer, you know, partisan hackery and opportunism that they found somebody to say something which makes them feel better. So they're going with that. Um, But the reverse is also true, I guess, as well. So you have the Democrats who took every word that this guy said as gospel. Now they're like, oh, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Well, you, you guys were all fawning over his, his testimony during the impeachment inquiry. So which is it? Do you, do you think everything he says is so spot on and right, or do you think he's wrong? Now, you know, I'm actually consistent on this because I thought his, his testimony was trash. Um, and I also think his opinion on impeachment now is trash. And I think it's utterly made up. Um, and it might even be like a weird just political ploy for him to try to get Pelosi to send the articles of impeachment to the Senate just because he wants those articles to be sent to the Senate. But that gets to the other thing, which is honestly just sheer backwards land, which is now the positions have flipped where the thing that the Democrats want is the thing that would hurt Democrats. And the thing that the Republicans want is the thing that would hurt Republicans, in my opinion. So... The reason why Pelosi hasn't sent, sent these articles yet to the Senate is because she's trying to, like, you know, she's trying to guarantee, like, a fair trial in the Senate. And they're having disagreements over whether or not it, um, witnesses will be called. And the Republican position is, and this is seemingly what they settled on. I know there's disagreement within the ranks, but the strategy that they uh, settled on is let's try to get this over with as fast as possible. Let's have the trial, quit the president, and move on and be done with it. That's what McConnell ultimately wants. Um, Now, the Democrats want the reverse of that. They want a longer impeachment trial, and they want to call witnesses because they've made the calculation, we think that'll help us. If if you have all the witnesses show up and say, oh, Trump did very bad things, that that'll help them. Now, I think McConnell and Pelosi are wrong in their deductions here because – I think a long trial is likely to help the Republicans because they're much better at flipping the argument than the Democrats are. And I think they can effectively make it like basically putting Joe Biden and Hunter Biden on trial. And you're going to walk away thinking they're on trial and it's not Trump who's up for impeachment. And, and the opposite is true, too. I think if you have a shorter trial, that doesn't help the Republicans as much as it would if it was longer. So I think they're both wrong in what they want to happen, and they've both made political miscalculations. But um, my position on it is, and I was telling you guys this uh, all along, I think Pelosi is accidentally doing the right thing here. Now, she is going to eventually send the articles to the Senate. I don't think she should send them at all. (laughs) I think she should just sit on them from now until the end of time. Why do I say that? 
and we'll get to the, some numbers on this later, but the second you send it to the Senate and you have the trial, let's not kid ourselves. Donald Trump is going to be acquitted. And so we're going to walk away from this and effectively nothing's going to change. You just made a whole lot of noise and then Trump walks away scot-free. Um, and in that situation, his poll numbers are going to go up. They're going to go up five to 10 points. Easy, easy. So now since the mistakes already been made and you impeached him, the strategic error has been made and you impeached him. Now, best case scenario is just sit on the impeachment and blame McConnell. Sit on it and go, oh, they want me to send the articles to the Senate. I, I'm trying to send the articles to the Senate. Go talk to Mitch McConnell. He's the one who's blocking it. He's the one who's, who's making sure that we don't have a trial and we don't have a vote on it. Don't blame, it's not me, it's him. Blame Mitch McConnell, blame Mitch McConnell, blame Mitch McConnell. And by the way, Donald Trump has officially been impeached. Donald Trump's been impeached. Donald Trump's been impeached and Mitch McConnell blocking him from going to the Senate. Wow. Isn't that crazy? If I'm Pelosi, that's what I say over and over and over and over and over. And what happens as a result of that? We're already seeing it. I'll get to the story later in the show. Support for impeachment has bumped up. It went from 48% to 52%. So now it's a majority. Granted, those, that's still, those aren't amazing numbers, but it is literally best case scenario for Democrats at this point. Or I should say, least worst case scenario. <laughs> so this is as good as it's going to get from here on out. They're peaking. 52% support for impeachment is as high as it's going to get, bro. So why not just sit on the articles indefinitely and just keep blaming McConnell? Because, and here's the deal. Donald Trump is melting down. Donald Trump is melting down over this. He's like, oh, my God, send it to the Senate. Oh, my God, let's have a quick impeachment trial. Oh, my God, why aren't they sending it to the Senate? So, guys, he wants his name cleared. He wants his name cleared. And so if you give him the trial and you acquit him, it's 100% guarantee he's going to get acquitted because you need to get over 20 Republican votes for impeachment. That's not going to happen. Well, you didn't get any in the, in the Senate or, excuse me, in the House. Actually, you got one, but the guy is now no longer Republican. He switched to being an independent. So you got one, let's say, if I'm being kind, really the actual number is zero. So you think you're going to get over 20 in the, in the Senate? It's not going to happen. So since that's mission impossible and you know he's going to get acquitted, you know that's going to clear his name, you know that's going to bump up his poll numbers, do nothing. <laughs> I'm surprised that there are people, and I've seen this, I was arguing with Jenk Uger on Twitter. I was like, why, why are you in a rush to acquit Trump? <laughs> like, that's what's going to happen is he's going to be acquitted. Don't be in a rush to do that. The fact that Donald Trump so desperately wanted to go to the Senate and to have the trial shows what? He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be acquitted. He wants to be acquitted so he can walk around, do a national bragging tour, puff his chest out and say, see, the do-nothing Democrats and the deep state, they tried their winch hunt, they tried their hoax, and let me tell you folks, the, your, your amazing, wonderful president has survived all of it. You can't take me down, folks. Teflon down. So don't give him that. Just sit on the impeachment articles, keep blaming McConnell, and keep repeating, oh, Trump has been impeached, by the way. He's been impeached, he's been impeached, he's been impeached, he's been impeached. Um, now the final point, and this is like a little low-key after-the-fact thing here, but... Guys, Nancy Pelosi sent a letter to Trump saying, okay, let's officially set your State of the Union address for February 4th. Now, hold on here. If, if Nancy Pelosi is so sure that impeachment was the right direction and that, you know, Donald Trump will get his day and he's going down over all this stuff, if she was so sure of that, 
why would she send a letter now saying all the way out in February 4th, we want you to give your State of the Union? It's almost like Nancy Pelosi knows 100% Donald Trump ain't going anywhere. He's going to be right there, come hell or high water. You're not going to impeach him. He's not going out. If you have a trial in the Senate, he's going to get acquitted. That low-key proves that she knows he's going to get acquitted, and she knows that this was doomed from day one. Because, you know, if Nancy Pelosi really believed in what she was doing here, she would think Donald Trump's going to be out of office by February 4th. He's going to be gone by February 4th. We're going to impeach him in the Senate. We're going to send the articles. We're going to have the trial, and we're going to win. It shows she has no confidence in what the Democrats did here, and she knows it's going to fail. Do you understand how you've been had? <laughs> you've been took? I mean, I told you guys this before, but as they're doing this, like, fake resistance against Trump, which they know is going nowhere, what else are they doing? Approving every single piece of legislation that he ever wanted them to approve, ever. That's what's going on. I mean, if you've been following this stuff, you know the National Defense Authorization Act. That got passed. You know, it gave the Republicans every single thing they've ever wanted. You know that um, they're also giving him his USMCA, which is NAFTA 2.0. And so they want to hand them a victory in that respect as well. They keep, as they're, the peak of the fake resistance is happening, behind the scenes, they're like, yes, Mr. President, I will give you your entire agenda. So, you know, it shows that this is one of those things where they want to feign the resistance, market like they're resisting. See, we're holding him accountable as they turn around and keep business as usual functioning. Business as usual, which helps Wall Street and the military-industrial complex, and their donors. So, you know, she ain't no legislative master, Pelosi. She just happens to be accidentally doing the right strategy right now. And again, the right strategy right now is just sit on the articles, do nothing, let Trump have his daily meltdowns, keep blaming McConnell. By the way, that is a problem because they're not, they're doing step one, which is just don't send the articles to the Senate, but they're not doing step two. Step two is you have to keep blaming McConnell and shifting the focus to him because the, the Republicans are flipping it and they're saying, no, it's Pelosi's fault. And now the media is starting to go with, oh, why isn't Pelosi sending it? Why isn't she sending the articles of impeachment? I don't understand this. So you have to flip it. You have to say, no, 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 it's 100% McConnell's fault. He's not guaranteeing a fair trial, so I'm trying to send the articles and he won't have it. So keep flipping it on him, but definitely don't send the articles. So she's accidentally doing the right thing by not sending the articles. But eventually she will do the wrong thing and she will send the articles and then it's off to the races until Trump's approval rating bumps up five or ten points. Cut your losses. Get up and leave the table. I'm telling you, man, you got to do it because right now 52% support for impeachment, that's as high as it's going to get, bro. I mean, maybe if she keeps sitting on it, it could go up to 54%, 55% at most. But this is like, this is like peak Democratic win in a very bad scenario. Second, it goes to the Senate, and then he gets acquitted. His numbers are going right back up. So don't give him that and let him keep melting down over how he wants you to send it to the Senate and just say, hey, I'm trying to send it. It's McConnell's fault. He's, not, he's, he's the problem here. Go talk to Mitch McConnell. So anyway, impeachment is a mess if you can't tell, um, and everything is backwards. And um, it does ultimately feel like a giant, colossal, ridiculous waste of time. Okay. Son of the beach. All right, let's move on here. 
story numero dos. CNN is going to relentlessly try to push one Amy Cloudboot jar. So we had the PBS debate recently, Democratic debate, and CNN has been relentlessly trying to push Amy Klobuchar on us post-debate. Um, they're going to cover a focus group here, but let's just say this focus group is not indicative of what their audience thinks. So take a look, and then we're going to come back. I'm going to give you some of the audience reactions, the comments on YouTube, which are hilarious. We've watched all the presidential debates with the same group of Iowa Democrats. Who do you think did best in this debate? Amy Klobuchar. 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 Klobuchar and Biden. Klobuchar and Biden. Klobuchar and Warren. Klobuchar. Klobuchar and Warren. Klobuchar. Sanders. Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar was picked by 10 of these 11 Johnson County, Iowa Democrats. She just comes across as having thoughtful, specific answers and not rehearsed talking points. When the other ones were, you know, bickering, she was there to diffuse it and bring focus back on why they were there. Another consensus among this group? The belief that Joe Biden had his strongest debate. His answers were direct. He stayed focused and um, just reminded me of the eight years under Obama. I mean, some, that thought, those memories back for me. What was the most important moment of the debate for you? Well, this is a little bit of a macro perspective, but I've been waiting a long time for a woman president in the United States. I'll be 75 on Monday. <laughs> so I, thank you. I am so excited to see two women on that debate stage who just did so well, and I am so proud of them, and I think either one of them would be a magnificent president. I'm going to get to the comments in a second, the YouTube comments, because it's hilarious. But first, let's address some of what they're saying. I'm going, to, I'm going to go ahead and put aside the whole rant that I could give right now on the priority of identity over policy. Um, let's just be kind to that woman and assume that she also is genuinely centrist, which is why she's willing to say, oh, I, I just want a woman president and Klobuchar is wonderful. Um, but that's me being a little too kind, to be fair, because she said, oh, I'll take Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar. Their ideologies are pretty far apart, pretty far apart. Elizabeth Warren is significantly to the left of Amy Klobuchar, regardless of what criticisms we all have of Warren, and I've voiced them before on the show, but she's definitely to the left of Amy Klobuchar. So she quite literally, that lady is quite literally prioritizing identity over policy because she's willing to support two totally different candidates with totally different ideologies with a valley in between their beliefs because they're both women. So, but anyway, I digress from that. Um, did you notice something about that group there? That's not quite indicative of um, the voting population now, is it? It is overwhelmingly older voters. So, wow, look at that. When you have a uh, Older voters, it turns out they're not fans of Bernie Sanders. And they also happen to find, like, all of Amy Klobuchar's supporters right there in that room. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the first point. And then the other thing I'd say is 
one of them says Amy Klobuchar gave, quote, thoughtful, specific answers. What debate are you watching, man? What debate are you watching? Invariably, every single time the centrist candidates um, do their centrist thing, which is like give some vague platitudes and cliches, talk about like their experience or some goofy nonsense like that, and also just attack the left-wing positions. And this debate was no different. Amy Klobuchar did the same thing. So what do you mean thoughtful, specific answer? She did everything. She was a gymnast to avoid discussing substantive policy. So I'm kind of, I'm a little annoyed watching that. However, my faith in humanity was immediately restored because, it, you know, listen, man, it's CNN. Are they fishing for certain answers? Yes, they are. They quite literally are trying to push the exact narrative that we thought they would try to push, which is pump out the centrist. Oh, Biden had a wonderful night. Now, to be fair, I think he did have his best debate night, but that's not that impressive. It's still the tallest kid in kindergarten type stuff. But they're pushing Biden and Klobuchar. What did I say? Biden, you know, they, they would be okay with Biden because he's a centrist and he represents the status quo and a return to normalcy. But then their insurance options are Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar. Mayor Pete had his moment in the sun. Now it seems like the media is slowly turning on him, but they're, again, trying to pump up Klobuchar. Um, now, the like to dislike on this video, and by the way, there were at least, I want to say, at least two other videos recently from CNN pumping out Amy Klobuchar and trying to, like, really act like, oh, oh, Klobuchar? Oh, yeah, definitely Klobuchar. She's a real serious candidate. Politico had an article, CNN's Chris Saliza, who's wrong about everything, that, oh, she won by a lot. And then there were at least two videos on CNN, on the YouTube page, where, like, one of them they invited Klobuchar on, and they're like, Senator Klobuchar, how does it feel knowing that you absolutely knocked it out of the park in the debate? <laughs> it's just so pathetic. But the audience is seeing through it. So this video, which said, you know, like, 10 out of 11 people say this Democrat won a debate. Uh, it has 2,000 likes and 10,000 dislikes. Kind of looks like your audience is not buying what you're selling there, CNN. And here are some of the YouTube comments. When Klobuchar is the answer, it must be a stupid question. <laughs> CNN trying so hard to push the moderate corporate sellouts. How cute. They gathered all of Amy's fans and put them together in one room. <laughs> then we have a classic fake news. Another one came to the comments for the answer since the title is clickbait. Are you trying to tell me 10 out of 11 people in this group said they like Klobuchar? Laugh my ass off. Maybe 10 out of 11,000. Hey, CNN, when you say voters pick Klobuchar, you probably mean Bernie Sanders. When you say Pete Buttigieg, you mean Bernie Sanders. When you pick Elizabeth Warren, you mean Bernie Sanders. When you pick Joe Biden, you mean Bernie Sanders. Heck, when you pick Hillary Clinton, you meant Bernie Sanders. This is glorious. And then you have more fake voters came to dislike. This has got to be BS. <laughs> Look at that sample size. Impressive. So, um... The comments immediately brought uh, back faith in humanity. Now, this is where people who are looking to make the case for Klobuchar and the center, they'll turn around and say, okay, but yeah, online is obviously more biased in the direction of Bernie Sanders because online you have younger people. Young, younger people are more likely to be pro-Bernie Sanders, and that's true. But my response to that is if the focus group of all old people counts, and, and by the way, the only young person there was pro-Bernie, uh, then the online comments count just as much. It's not more, because there are more online comments. I love it when people say online isn't the real world. It both is and it isn't. 
It is and it isn't. Sure, it's, it's skewed a little bit because it's overwhelmingly younger people, but it's just as you know valid as a senior citizen center. <laughs> it's just as valid as you know a, a golf club in Boca Raton with retirees. So one demographic is older, one demographic is younger. As long as we're getting everybody out to vote, okay, we'll see you at the polls and we'll see who wins. Bottom line is, is if you have a large turnout, then Bernie Sanders is uh, definitely going to be the front runner. And I just realized how deep are we into the story now, and I still have the freaking Trump impeachment graphic over my shoulder because I'm an absolute moron. There's cloud boot jar for you right there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it counts to some extent. We can have a debate over just how much it counts, and I think that's reasonable. But, yeah, I mean, clearly people online are going, mm, you're trying to push a narrative on me, and I can see it. And why is it? Let me ask everybody. Why is it that you had the L.A. Times um, focus group, which we covered on the show. It was a Frank Lund's focus group. And you had definitely a more wide array in terms of demographics in that group. And they overwhelmingly said Bernie won. And, by the way, the polls are not reflecting that Klobuchar is doing so swimmingly and doing so amazingly. So, meanwhile, Bernie keeps going up, keeps surging after these debate performances. Klobuchar keeps, at best, being stagnant. She's not surging. She's been stuck at whatever it is, 5%, a little less than that for a long time now. So, weird that the CNN focus group doesn't really match what all the other empirical evidence tells us. So, but I, you know, listen, that's why I tell you guys in advance on this show. I tell you in advance that here are the candidates that, they're, that they favor. And, you know, you could see that their coverage effectively mirrors that. And even though they swear up and down that they don't have an ideology and that they're objective or neutral, no, the, the fact of the matter is the, the filtering comes in the hiring process, just as Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent taught us. And you don't have pe- they don't hire people who are going to have the kind of opinions that a guy like me has. They're going to hire people who more or less reflect the will of their investors and of the owners of the company. And so they limit the spectrum of debate, which is called the Overton window. And so they try to push out there the idea, oh, the serious candidates, I mean, come on, that's Joe Biden. That's Joe Biden, that's Amy Klobuchar, that's Mayor Pete. Like, these are the people who are the real serious candidates. And so their coverage is reflecting that. You know, and we're going to cover later, some people are beginning to begrudgingly accept the fact that Bernie might have a chance but there's this resistance to it. Like, no, 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 that's, you're just not serious. That's ridiculous. Obviously, Bernie Sanders doesn't have a chance. There's this resistance that you have to push through. When the numbers have been clear for so long now that he's literally number two in the polls, solidly. And melting brain Joe Biden is ahead of him. The idea that still to this point, they're still trying to act like, well, we all know it's not going to be Bernie, right? Shows you how deeply biased they are, even though they pretend like they're not. Um, but... Listen, I'm not telling you to throw out the results here. Klobuchar had a night where she spoke a lot. She filled the room with noise. That did happen. And she was kind of aggressive. If you want to interpret that as a win, by all means, go right ahead. Um, So I'm not throwing out these results. But what I am saying is it really is out of lockstep with the rest of the evidence. And it is worth something that there is such a broad rejection of this narrative from CNN's own audience. And, um, you know, when I did that, uh, when I covered one of the debates and my takeaway was 
Cory Booker was like a low-key winner of the debate. You guys didn't like trash me for that. Nobody said, you know, mass downvoted a video and said that's ridiculous. Because I think there was enough evidence to suggest, and, and he performed well enough where I was like, no, he actually did like really well in this debate. And um, there wasn't this like mutiny among the audience of like, that's ridiculous. But with CNN and other corporate outlets pushing Klobuchar, there really is like a mutiny. And they're like, stop trying to tell us some like, what do you believe? Me or your lying eye stuff. Because we certainly don't believe you. And um, expect more of this. It's going to keep happening because they need that insurance policy and they want her to be the insurance policy. And so they're really going all in. And um, they will act like she's above reproach. They will act like she's an amazing candidate. They will act like she's, uh, you know, one of the most electable, which is hilarious that they have this notion, this, this thing that's like, oh, regardless of what the actual numbers say and whether or not you're literally electable, we're just going to say that in theory you're more electable because of, you know, fill in the blank. You're from the Midwest. You're a woman. You, therefore, theoretically, like Bill Maher said, she could hold the base but also get crossover voters. You're making all of this up. If she could do all those things, why isn't she doing all those things? So it, it, just get ready, man, because there's going to be a lot more of this. But at the very least, I do have to say I'm very happy. I'm surprised CNN hasn't turned off their like to dislike, and I'm surprised that CNN hasn't turned off their comments because um, this is going to keep happening. The more they try to, you know, blow Amy Klobuchar and, and, and Biden to a lesser extent, although even they're kind of saying that Biden's on baby deer legs. And um, we got to buckle up. For your mental health, just prepare yourself because there's going to be a lot more of this and uh, it's going to be equally insufferable every single time. Okay. All right, next. Same topic here. We got a CNBC host refusing to accept that Bernie is, uh, is really a beast. Pollster Frank Luntz uh, recently did a focus group, and in his focus group, after the last debate, Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly won the debate. And here he went on CNN to discuss his findings, or I'm, I'm sorry, not CNN, CNBC, to discuss his findings. And the host, Aaron Ross Sorkin, he couldn't quite believe that Bernie, forget, won the debate. He couldn't quite believe that Bernie, like, had a chance at all even in the election. So watch him struggle with that. Okay, let's go to the uh, final clip here. We had uh, Bernie Sanders addressing the Trump economy several times on the debate stage last night. Trump goes around saying the economy is doing great. You know what? Real inflation accounted for wages went up last year, 1.1%. That ain't great today in America. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth. More income and wealth inequality since, than since the 1920s. We need an economy that works for working families. So there's nothing new there. Is there nothing new? But that- you think he's the winner of the night? I don't think he's the winner tonight. The LA Times group, they said he was the winner tonight, and for two reasons. Number one, he had passion. 
And number two, for the first time, they're starting to see him as having the capability of challenging Donald Trump on the debate stage. I want to remind you, these are Democratic primary voters, not the center of the country, and obviously none of them voted for Donald Trump. But they now see Bernie Sanders as being able to take the arguments directly to Donald Trump, and that's why he's been rising in the California polls, and that's why he won last night. Great, but let me ask you, so you're you're obviously polling people in in Los Angeles, in, in California. We know what that state looks like. It seems to me, I don't even think it seems to me, I think it seems to everybody that this election is get won or lost uh, in a handful of swing states in the middle of the country uh, by a handful of independents uh, that have yet to make up their mind. And, and to the extent that you can um, predict or, through implication, uh, the folks that you were speaking with, what's the, what's the real takeaway? The real takeaway is not who wins in November. It's who gets the Democratic nomination. And I would have said to you, say, 30 days ago, that I don't think Bernie Sanders is viable in the 2020 campaign. After listening to these voters in California, with more delegates than any other state in the country, I think Bernie Sanders is a good opportunity, good chance to win the primary. And if you win California, you get such a huge share of the delegates. Right. Now that Kamala Harris so is how do you How do you rank things right now? Oh, I can't. And I said this to you a, a week ago. Yes, you can. You can rank it. You can rank it. Go right ahead. <laughs> I can rank it. I, th- I honestly believe there's about an equal chance at the moment of Bernie and Biden, or Biden being the nominee. I think that it's overwhelmingly likely just hanging on by the skin of their teeth is Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete being like viable, but their chances are quickly fading into oblivion. But I think it's, it's a coin flip right now between Bernie and Biden. Now, I got to give Biden credit because, I mean, he's hanging on. I thought he would have already been out of the lead by now. I did early on. I was telling you guys, there's no way the more he starts talking, the more people are going to dislike him and the more, you know, Bernie will grow a lead. Um, but it's, hey, man, the numbers are clear and he is hanging on. I think a lot of that support really is default support, as I call it, which is just like the who's running? Oh, oh, Biden's running. Well, he was the VP under under Obama. Sure. Biden. I would support Biden. Why not? I'd vote for him. I think that that's like a lot of what his support is. And the numbers show that, too, by the way, because Bernie has the highest percentage of people who are set on voting for Bernie. I think the number's like over 70 percent, which is out of this world, whereas everybody else is like below 50 percent for that uh, for that um, category. So but I do think, you know, you have to accept the reality for what it is. And Biden has what, about a five point lead in the average or maybe a little bit more than a five point lead in the average of polls. Um, But I do think that Bernie and and Biden have about an equal shot right now of being um, the nominee. And Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren are barely holding on by the skin of their teeth. Um, But you could see they're so... They don't want to say that either Bernie's the favorite or Bernie and Biden are tied for the favorite. They don't want to say it. They don't want to say it. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. I I cannot tell you the state of the race. I don't know. I don't know. And you notice there were multiple times there where Aaron Ross Sorkin, like, literally threw the softball down the center of the plate and was like, okay, now I'm going to prep you. Go ahead and give us our corporate spin. (laughs) He said, he said, um, I mean, well, really, 
what's the real takeaway here? What's the real takeaway about this race? That's him saying, like, okay, sure, you said your little spiel about Bernie Sanders, but who do you really think is a serious candidate? Klobuchar? Klobuchar, can we go with Klobuchar? To be fair to him, he didn't say Klobuchar, but the, he's teeing it up for Frank Luntz to be like, well, at the end of the day, obviously, it's not going to be Bernie, and it is going to be one of the corporate candidates. That's what he's doing. He's teeing it up. Um, so he was just waiting for it and put our spin on it and put our spin on it. Um, and then – so here's the message I have for Aaron Ross Sorkin. When he says, well, swing states and independence, that's what this race really comes down to. Dude, those are the states that Bernie Sanders does the best around the country. Those are his, like, guaranteed layup states. And, yes, I said it. Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders in the Rust Belt, Bernie Sanders is going to destroy him. Because Bernie Sanders is the actual economic populist that Donald Trump just pretended to be. And you think people in that area of the country don't know it? Of course they know it. Obama ran in a semi-populist way, and then Obama abandoned them. Trump ran in a populist way, and then Trump abandoned them. And, you know, you got Bernie Sanders with the track record to back it up, opposing all the trade deals um, and being a strong supporter of unions his entire career. Meanwhile, there was a story just the other day, and we're going to cover this later, but um, a U.S. steel mill in Detroit is shut in the factory. 1,500 jobs, poof, gone, in an area that already is struggling and was obliterated by the trade deals uh, originally when – all the car manufacturers left there. So, and this is Trump, oh, you know, Mr., I'm, I'm a populist and I'm going to save uh, the jobs and whatnot. Really? Well, 93,000 jobs were outsourced in your first year as president. That's just your first year. The carrier factory that you made such a big stink, oh, I'm saving these jobs. Those jobs eventually went overseas as well. So you think these people don't know it? Of course they know it. You think they're just going to you know, close their eyes and vote for Trump again? No, they feel abandoned by him. They feel betrayed by him. Bernie Sanders does fantastically well in those states. So his concern is actually couldn't be more wrong. If anything, the real concern for Bernie is how is he going to do in New York? How is he going to do in California? Now, in some polls, he's leading in California, which is wonderful. But guys, remember, last election, 2016, he got obliterated in California, and he got obliterated in New York. Now, some of that in New York was because of the terrible rules that shut out independence, and you had to switch to being a Democrat months before the election. So it was really voter suppression there as well. So don't get it twisted on that front. But, but, yeah, he got defeated in New York. He got defeated in California. And so for him to act like, well, we know it's California, so obviously it's going to be pro-Bernie. What are you talking about? He got destroyed there last time. So because, by the way, there's a lot of areas that are liberal areas which are relatively higher income areas in California, which explains why it went for Hillary over Bernie. Because, you know, people who are already wealthy, they don't want as much of a political revolution, generally speaking, um, as people who are middle class or poor. So, but Bernie's obviously doing work and really turning out the more middle class areas and poor areas. And the polls are reflecting that, you know, he's doing really well in that state. But that wasn't a given. And this is what I hate. Anytime, like, a lefty does something good, it's always just fun. It's like, oh, well, obviously that was going to happen. There is no obviously in this thing. There is no obviously. So, like, it took, it's taking hard work and rallies and getting people out there and spreading the message, and he just acts like, well, it's California, so obviously it goes to Bernie. Are you kidding me? What a joke that is. But Bernie is the strongest in the swing states, and he has a very high percentage of flipping Trump voters. There's only three candidates who really can flip Trump voters, which is Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and Bernie Sanders. Everybody else struggles massively on that front. 
And so the criticism of him here is hilariously the thing that Bernie's actually strongest at. Um, and then the other thing is, I like when he goes, you think he's the winner? <laughs> and Frank Luntz is like, it doesn't matter what I think. It's what the group thought, and, that, and they thought he was the winner. And this is not like, remember the CNN focus group where they had all older people and all of them were like, Klobuchar was great. Frank Luntz at least had a more, you know, wide array of voters, which is more representative of the demographics of America. So you got a little bit of more of a finger on the pulse when you go with the Frank Luntz group, the LA Times group versus the CNN group. Um, But it's hilarious. He's just unwilling to accept it. Do you think he's the winner? And they were saying, well, he said nothing new there. Yeah, but we don't have Medicare for all yet. So you're going to have to keep talking about Medicare for all yet. We still have insane record levels of income inequality. So you have to keep talking about the insane record levels of income inequality. Like, this is a criticism that's been thrown at Bernie. And by the way, this is a criticism thrown at this show, too. But listen, I'll be the first to say it. Guilty. Guilty as could be. Sometimes I'm massively repetitive. Guilty. You want to know why? Because we don't have Medicare for all. And we don't have free college. And we don't have a living wage. And we haven't ended the wars. And we haven't done a Green New Deal. And we haven't legalized marijuana and released every single nonviolent drug offender. And we haven't regulated Wall Street. Like... That's why we're repetitive, because the problems haven't changed. They haven't been addressed. In fact, they're getting worse. So, yes, when Bernie goes out there and he does his little stump speech, he's doing his little stump speech, but it lands and it resonates because he means it. He's passionate, as Franklin said. But also people know he's going to do something about it. He's going to fight for these positions which he thinks will fix the country. And, by the way, I happen to agree with him. I think he's right that they would fix the country. But there you have it. You see them absolutely positively struggling. Aaron Ross Sorkin, for sure, Frank Luntz to a lesser extent, but Aaron Ross Sorkin is just struggling to accept the fact that, hey, he could really win, man. He could really win. And you see that, you know, we've seen, it's like they go through different stages of grief in in mainstream media when it comes to Bernie. And we're still in a stage, at least partially, where they just try to ignore Bernie and act like he doesn't exist. By the way, they definitely do that with Yang as well. It's crystal clear that they've tried to ignore him and act like he doesn't exist because he's not serious, according to them. But, like, there's a concerted effort to, like, talk about them as little as possible. And they've gone with the strategy, which, by the way, is semi-genius, the strategy of, oh, no, when we attack him, sometimes his numbers go up. His poll numbers go up, and he gets more um, donations. So let's do the exact opposite and just be indifferent and just don't talk about it. And, you know, it's, if you, it's he who shall not be named. If you cover your ears and close your eyes and act like he doesn't exist, maybe that'll hurt him more than if we go after him. That definitely has been the strategy at a bunch of corporate media outlets. But he's still slowly climbing even with that indifference strategy and so even though I think it's the best possible strategy they could use against them, now it looks like they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And they might, you know, start going after him aggressively again, which could in turn help him even more. It's almost like we're dealing with a movement here. And it's almost like there are other ways around corporate media. And that's, you know, you have new media, you have social media, which is really important, independent media. Um, and you also just have good old-fashioned campaigning and working getting people involved, texting, calling, knocking on doors, Bernie going around, doing rallies, talking to voters, hearing their concerns. And the good old-fashioned campaigning is beating these schmucks, that's for sure.
All right, baby, here we go. Next, 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 next. This is an interesting story. I got to gather my thoughts for this one. I'm not sure exactly what I feel about this. A Democratic representative decided to leave the party and officially become a Republican over impeachment. So here he is. He went on Fox News here, and he's going to kiss the ring. There's a new Republican congressman on Capitol Hill. New Jersey's Jeff Van Drew officially saying goodbye to the Democrats amid disagreements over impeachment policy and the direction of the party. Congressman Jeff Van Drew joins me right now in an exclusive interview. Congressman, it is a pleasure to see you. Thanks very much for joining me this morning. It is a pleasure to be with you, and as I was saying before, uh, I am so proud to be associated with you. You truly represent what news media should be about and just how to conduct a show like this. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very proud of you and the work that you do and uh, the objectivity that you have. So really thank you. And you were the first one to give me a shot, too. Congressman, that means the world to me in, in, this, uh, in this environment of media today. I so, I'm grateful, and I so appreciate your comments. Let me ask you, we, we spoke on the phone the other day, and, and you said, you know, Marie, I always look for signs. There was a sign, something in you that said, I'm not comfortable here. Tell me how you came to this decision to leave the majority, the Democrats, and become a Republican congressman. Well, the final point and the final sign, so there has been all along, you know, where the party is moving further and further to the left where there's discussions of it being a socialist party, and I am a proud capitalist. I believe in hard work. I believe that we can give people opportunity, uh, but that they also, when they get that opportunity, have to work hard to achieve success. You can't give them success. And many other things that I'm sure we'll talk as we go along here. But the final sign for me <clears throat> was, oddly enough, um, actually in my home county, when one of the county chairmen, and I have eight counties, one of the county chairmen came to me and said, I have to speak with you. And I said, sure, and sat down, and he said, I just want to let you know that you have to vote for impeachment. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you've got to vote for impeachment. If you don't, you're not going to be able to run in my county. Well, first of all, it's not his county, it's our county. And you're not going to be able to move forward. You're not going to get the line, which is a big deal in New Jersey. And, and you're not going to be successful. And I, first of all, I still could have run, and I could, still could have gotten the line, and I could have fought it out. I fought a lot of things in my life, and I fought hard to be where I am. But it made me think, for all the years that I've worked so hard and tried to give so much, uh, not only to the party, but to everybody, um, the things that we've done, and I won't go into them, but many, many infrastructure projects and helping people and all the services that we try to give people in our offices, and it all boils down to one vote that I may have my own individual opinion on one vote, and that's not going to be allowed. I'm going to be punished for that, and that's when I knew. I had been thinking about it for a while, and I said, and you know, I was speaking to my chief of staff about this, and and I said to her, I said, you know, there's always been in my career and over time something that happens that lets you know that it is time to make a change. And this was it. I do genuinely believe that this guy will be accepted with open arms by the right. 
I think that that's going to happen. Um, and I do think that that's a difference, a big difference between the right and the left, is that oftentimes people on the left, like if there was a former Republican who like flipped and became a full-on social Democrat, like hard lefty in the context of the spectrum in Washington, I do think people on the left would be like, eh, you used to be wrong, so you're still out. Um, and that's not good. I think it actually makes sense to um, accept people after they've reformed and um, bring them into the fray insofar as they actually agree with the agenda. Um, I'm, I'm big on policy, and my thing is if you agree with us on policy, on the basics, then I don't care about anything else. I don't care about anything else. As long as you're with us on the policies, it, where all systems go. So I do think that the right is more willing to – in general terms, the right is more willing to accept a transformation, a change, and if it's in their direction, now they're going to hold this guy up as like, you know, like a hero. And he's already, Trump is already out there fundraising for him. He said, you know, go donate to this guy. I'm sure his donations are through the roof because for all of Donald Trump's flaws, he's a beast small dollar fundraiser. He absolutely is. I mean, he takes big money too, don't get it twisted, but He's got a lot of people who support him, and they will open up those wallets. And, I, and he said, hey, give to this guy Van Drew, and I'm sure they're doing it. So, But there's a lot more to say about this. So on the impeachment thing, I actually kind of agree with Van Drew that it's gross that they're like, you have to do X, Y, or Z. I don't have to do anything. I do whatever the hell I want to do. I'm, I'm representing the voters as I see fit. So you can't – don't give me that nonsense of like, you have to do X, Y, or Z. No, I'm going to do – I was elected. Were you elected? Whoever was telling them that was not elected to the position that Van Drew was literally elected to. So how about you? Piss off. So I agree with him that that's kind of gross. But I will say this. Beware the total transformation from an older person. Now, if you're a young person and you're just starting to think about these things and, you know, you've changed your mind, you've flipped, um, in many instances, guys, it's just raw opportunism. He's trying to spin it as if it's like a principled stand. But no, it's, it's raw opportunism. And he's a politician. And politicians, as a general rule, you know, are deeply, deeply political beings. And so he's looking for an angle. And I remember we discussed this when it came to Rave Dubin. I mean, he was a grown-ass man, and he had a political transformation where he flipped on, like, all of his beliefs in the course of, like, a year that doesn't really happen. Again, if you're young and you're just getting into politics and you're starting to explore the world of politics and you know you veer into one ideology and then you find another one that's actually more appealing that adequately rebuts the old ideology that you believe, that's a totally different thing and that happens all the time. But this dude ain't no spring chicken, dog. So for him to say, I'm gonna go from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, I mean, honestly, that's effectively him saying, because of impeachment, I've now changed my mind on social safety net programs, abortion, immigration, gay rights, regulation, and the degree to which regulation is acceptable and good, foreign policy, because the Republicans are more in favor of hard power, as it's called, with boots on the ground and invasions, and the Democrats are more in favor of soft power as a general rule, which is like drone strikes and all that stuff, which is still hawkish, but there's different degrees there, um, and a, a variety of other issues. So for him to totally flip and, oh, uh, yeah, now I'm with these people, 
what? What does that mean? You could, you can definitely be a Democrat and be like, I'm against impeachment. You could definitely do that. Tulsi's a Democrat, and she said, I'm voting present. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'm going to vote present. Now, I disagreed with her vote, but she can do it. And she's, she's not going to say, oh, now everything I've ever believed, I'm going to toss it out the window and just totally switch political affiliations. That's honestly hilarious. <laughs> and it's like a raw opportunism type thing in the same way that Dave Rubin is um, grifter extraordinaire. Oh, I found an angle. I'll be the gay guy who was the former liberal. And now I'll turn around and say like, oh, hello, right-wingers. Well, you guys, I think, are honestly right about everything, and you're so much better than the left. And I know because I used to be on the left. And I find that you guys are even more tolerant and accepting even of my sexuality. As Ben Shapiro literally said to his face, like, no, I wouldn't bake you a cake. <laughs> and, and Ruben was like, okay, but what if I, we just had a get-together in a party and, like, an anniversary get-together, and we were cooking on the barbecue and whatever, you come over then? And Shapiro was like, um, no, probably not. <laughs> Beware, like, the total transformation. And that's not to say you can't change your mind on, like, you know, three or so issues, you know, like there's definitely the wiggle room where even if you're growing and you're older, but you're still learning and you're reading more and you're educating yourself, it's definitely a thing that happens where you might change your mind on one big issue, maybe two big issues. Honestly, again, three big issues. It could happen. You know, hey, I learned, I grew, I, I had personal experience, whatever it might be. So now I don't believe that anymore. That always happens. But on every single political issue, you're now flipping to be with a party that you nominally are supposed to disagree with on everything because of impeachment. That's just silly, raw opportunism is what that is. And uh, that's crystal clear. And you can see, you saw how he was like so sycophantic at the beginning there when talking to uh, Maria Bartiromo. Like, oh, you guys are so wonderful. You do such a good job on Fox News. You're telling me you were a Democrat five and a half minutes ago, and now all of a sudden you think Fox News is like the beacon of all that's good and right with journalism? Perhaps a guy like Van Drew, for him, he, he doesn't care about the policy stuff at all, really, at all. Politics was just a vehicle for wealth and self-aggrandizement. That's very likely. Because, again, this isn't a thing. Like, imagine believing so little in the things that you were espousing that all it takes is one disagreement on one issue to be like, totally switching now. Super, super sketchy. Okay, next. All right, Andrew Yang, I got to come after you, unfortunately. Andrew Yang went on Fox News and he spoke to Neil Cavuto. And um, he pitched him a question here about Elizabeth Warren hating the rich. And I have to say, I really don't like how Yang didn't push back on the framing of this question. the rap against 
party enters that and may be led by the most vocal critics that hates rich people. Um, Bernie Marcus, the, the co-founder of Home Depot, was on with me yesterday uh, railing against that sentiment from Elizabeth Warren. I want you to react to this. Is Bernie Marcus. Sure. Look at her. How much money is she worth today, and what the hell did she do to get that money? Did she work the way I worked? I doubt it very much. What would you think of that? Uh, I think <laughs> that uh, if the Democratic Party does uh, antagonize anyone who's made a certain amount of money in our society, but to, to me, uh, you should be praising people who succeed because many of them work very, very hard to get where they are. Uh, and the, the question is, how do we balance the economy so that it works for more people, for more of us? The tough part, Neil, is that Americans can sense that the American dream is slipping away for more and more of us. Yes, the latter part of that is true. But the fact that he didn't push back on how Warren was categorized and how the left was categorized is really disappointing. Come on, Andrew. Come on. You know, I'm a big, forget being a critic of going on Fox News. I'm a proponent of lefties going on Fox News. I know because I did it. And I tell, like, remember when Elizabeth Warren had that grandstanding statement of, like, I will not go on such terrible network, eh? And I was like, oh, pipe down. Like, what? what you, oh, you're so morally pure. Like, no. If you believe in your ideology, go and try to change people's minds. But what I don't like is you went into their house and agreed with them on a bullshit thing they were saying. To be fair, he didn't agree with them. He just didn't push back adequately when he needed to push back. The second that they try to pretend, like, many people say that your party hates the rich and the le- some of the leaders of your party, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, hate the rich. What do you say in response to that? Your response has to be, no, Neil, that's ridiculous. They don't hate the rich. They're trying to create a system that is more fair, more just, more equitable, and still values hard work. And that's why this gets under my skin, is that the notion that Cavuto and that weird old executive dude, owner dude who is trying to like go after Elizabeth Warren, the notion that they're trying to push out there is so immensely preposterous. And he was like, what did she do to earn that money? I bet she didn't work as hard as me. This is the mindset. I don't know how much money that guy has. He's either a multimillionaire or a billionaire. But that's the mindset from this guy. Like, oh, I'm the only one who worked really hard in Elizabeth Warren, working other people working hard. I got news for you. Some of the people who I've met in my life who were the hardest working were living under the poverty line. I know people who had two jobs, three jobs, and they were barely scraping by. And Andrew Yang has said, and, you know, I give him credit for using this line. By the way, I started using this line at least five years ago, but your uh, economic value is not the same as your human value. He says that too. And when that guy says, oh, what has she done? I work really hard. What has she done? The response to that has to be, well, actually, other people work really hard too. And actually, some of the people who you think are lazy uh, are some of the hardest workers out there. And we have a system that doesn't reward hard work. We have a system that doesn't reward hard work. You could be really busting ass and still barely getting by. The minimum wage is not a living wage. You could work a full-time job and not make enough money to survive. You know, and that's the point. The point is the system is not objective. It's not fair. It's not a 100-yard dash where people all start at the zero-yard line and then you shoot the gun in the air and they all go. That's not what it's like. And they live under the assumption that the myth of meritocracy is true. 
That's what uh, Neil Cavuto believes, and that's what the guest who is trying to go after Elizabeth Warren believes. And the fact of the matter is, the person who has a billion dollars, what's the number? I'm forgetting the number. I think it's over 60% of wealth is inherited. So stop and think about that. You have people out there who are billionaires who pass away and they pass on multi-multi-millions of dollars to their kids, and they never worked a day in their life. They never did anything. Spoiled little brat kids who now don't have to work a day in their life from now until they die. I mean, Republicans, when they talk about social safety net programs and when they talk about, like, food stamps and welfare, they're like, you got to work for what you're going to get. Work. Shut up and go work for it. Work. Work. Shut up and work. But then when it comes to the kids of billionaires, they're like, oh, no, you don't have to work. You don't have to work. For you, we're not, you know, seeping your drive to do well and your ambition by handing you over multiple millions of dollars. No. So the thing that Elizabeth Warren's calling for, and even more so Bernie Sanders, because he's further to the left and more of a social democrat than Elizabeth Warren is, um, what they're calling for is a system that's more fair, makes sense, is more equitable, and is more objective. And they want a system that rewards hard work, but they want the floor to be a reasonable floor. And there's no hating of the rich. Guys, if you take, if you take the, uh, Bernie's wealth tax plan and implement it, Billionaires would still be billionaires. I know that Bernie has tweeted before that billionaires shouldn't exist, but his tax plan, his wealth tax plan, still allows billionaires to exist. So this idea, you're demonizing the wealthy by saying that a guy who has, you know, uh, $4 billion should have $2 billion. How dare you demonize the wealthy? That's not demonizing the wealthy, and the fact that it's spun as such is hilarious. And that's why it's upsetting that Andrew Yang didn't push back on that. Because the notion that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren hate anybody is beyond absurd. They just want a system that works for people. And also, let's acknowledge the fact that extreme wealth, by its very nature, by its mere existence, threatens the structure and the function of government. Because when you have such extreme wealth, you have this problem of corporate capture of the government, where... You have so much wealth that you effectively are more powerful than the government, and you can buy the politicians to do your bidding and rig the rules in your favor, which is exactly the problem. So there's an argument to be made against extreme wealth simply from a democratic perspective, that if you want a democracy to function as it's intended to function, and yes, we are a constitutional republic, but also a representative democracy, if you want the system to function as it's supposed to function, then you can't have extreme wealth because that will corrupt the process up front. So, and this is all stuff that's just kind of swatted aside. And Andrew Yang acknowledges like, oh, you know, hey, we shouldn't be demonizing the wealthy. Nobody is demonizing the wealthy, Andrew. Nobody's demonizing the wealthy. Nobody. If you're talking about ticking up marginal tax rates, if you're talking about a wealth tax, which I know that Andrew Yang disagrees with, and that's fair enough, man. You can disagree with the wealth tax. But you most certainly should acknowledge that if somebody supports a wealth tax, that doesn't mean that they hate the rich. This is the same stuff, you know, I run into this all the time when I debate conservatives, is they love to tell you what's going on in your head. How about you piss off and let me explain myself? How about that? Well, I think that you think this. I don't care what you think I think. I'm right here. Ask me. Ask me. So when they go, oh, yeah, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, they hate the rich. For you to not know that their response would be that's ridiculous and you to feed into that talking point, come on, man. Come on, dude. What are you doing, man? You're better than that. You're better than that. Oh, that's so frustrating. This, this reminds me when Tulsi went on Dave Rubin's show, and Dave Rubin was like, a lot of the Democrats are supporting open borders. And Tulsi's like, yeah, yeah, I don't agree with open borders. 
you're allowed to push back and be like, actually, none of them are really calling for open borders. They're not doing that. Marianne Williamson went on the show and said that. I'm 100% in favor of going into hostile territory and trying to convince people, trying to sway people, get, getting people on your side. I'm 100% in favor of that, 100%. But if they set up a question for you that's a gross smear of people who are nominally on your side, you better correct it. Because there you just let them get away with it and fed right into the notion that, oh, well, obviously many people on the left just despise the rich. <laughs> if you want to slightly increase the taxes of multimillionaires and billionaires, by no stretch of the imagination is that hating the rich, being against the rich, that's called fixing a terrible system and making it so everybody has equal opportunity and a shot to live a decent life. That should have been said. All right, let's take a break when we come back. I got one more on Andrew Yang. Don't worry for all the Yang gangers who are pissed at me. You will like me again in a minute. (laughs) So, you know, hold your fucking angry tweet fire. I don't give a shit. Anyway, we'll be right back, guys, with uh, more Yang and much, much more.
All right, I'm back, y'all. I am back. I am back. So am I the crazy one with that last story? I don't think I am. I don't think I am. I want to hear. I want to hear the. Um, I want to hear him not answer that again. Let me listen. Well, the rap against your party and is that it may be led by the most vocal critics that hates rich people. Hates uh, rich people. Marcus, the, the co-founder. Of hates rich people. Was on with me yesterday, uh, railing against that sentiment from Elizabeth Warren. I want you to react to this. Is Bernie Sanders? Look at her. How much money? Is this guy? What is he? I want you to react. What's it? What's his uh, title? Who is this guy? Oh, co-founder of Home Depot. Okay. Uh, railing against that sentiment from Elizabeth Warren. I want you to react to this. This is Bernie Lefer. Look at her. How much money is she worth today? And what the hell did she do to get that money? Oh, God. Did she worked the way I worked? I doubt it very much. Uh, what did you think of that? Uh, I think that uh, if the Democratic Party does... Uh, antagonize anyone who's made a certain amount of money in our society. But to, to me, uh, you should be praising people who. Oh God! Come on, Andrew. Very very hard to get where they are. Uh, and the the question is, how do we balance the economy so that it works for more people, for more of us? The tough part, Neil, is that Americans can sense that the American dream is slipping. But that's the thing: is that like nobody's antagonizing the wealthy. Nobody's antagonizing the wealthy. Honestly, the ones who show up on Fox News and Fox Business and, you know, say stuff like that guy said, he's a whiny little bitch. And he's mad that his marginal tax rate is going to go up slightly. He's mad that the corporate tax rate is going to go up slightly. He's mad that, you know, you're ever so gently going to cut into the, his multi-million dollar fortune and still leave him with multi, multiple millions of dollars. You got to push back there, bro. You got to push back there. Yeah, that, I'm sorry. That's not good. Sorry, Yang Gang. He, he failed there. That's for sure. All right. We're going to go right back into something where you don't hate me. Andrew Yang is a fascinating character. There are times that I... Uh, really agree with him and think his addition to this race is a positive thing. And there are times that um, I really disagree with him. So, you know, I'll give you examples of each. I really agree with him. I like the fact that he's bringing UBI front and center into the national conversation um, and shifting the Overton window on that front. I think that's a positive thing. Um, I think it's great that he's the only candidate who says we should decriminalize all drugs. That's a bold stand. It's a correct stance. And again, he's shifting the Overton window on this, and he's a much needed voice of reason on that topic. Um, what I don't like is, uh, you know, for one thing, he's not for a $15 minimum wage. That's one of my top issues is a $15 minimum wage. Now, I understand his supporters say, yeah, but he has a different way of like basically getting to the same place. I hear you on that. But I still disagree on the policy. I think we should have a $15 minimum wage. I think we should have a living wage. I don't, I'm not interested in like roundabout ways of getting there. I'm interested in a direct way of getting there. Now, if you want to talk about 
other policies Andrew Yang has alongside of a living wage, I'm with you. But to not be for a living wage, that I don't like that. Um, and, you know, he said some stuff on Israel that I'm not a fan of. He said, why would I, you know, uh, cut off the subsidy to Israel? Agree to disagree on that one, dog. And, um, you know, there's some other stuff, too. But I digress from that. I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of things I really like and things I don't like. Now, here's something I like. And this is yet again him wandering into a minefield to shift the Overton window. And he's correct on this, in my opinion. So he tweeted, we should consider decriminalizing sex work on the part of the seller. It would be helpful in combating human trafficking. Many sex workers are themselves victims. Now, um, he doesn't go as far as I would like. I think it should be legalized, taxed, and regulated at the federal level. Um, But as far as I know, and maybe I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, please correct me by all means, but I think he's the only candidate who's taken this position and has taken this stance and has made this an issue at all. And that's bold. That's bold because, listen, I do think that he, he can now be maligned as like, uh, why, why is he even talking about this issue? It's like only like, you know, like awkward and horny dudes who would bring up this issue of sex workers' rights and, you know, uh, take this position on it. Now, I don't think that's true at all. I think that it's just it's a political issue like any other political issue. And I think our laws right now on it are atrocious and abysmal. And yet again, I think this is him saying, let's take a step in the right direction, and he should be commended for that. Now, what's fascinating is there's actually disagreement on the left over this. Um, and for those of you who are unaware of it, one of, my, one of my intellectual heroes doesn't have my position on this, Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is of the belief that uh, basically if you address the material conditions um, that lead to poverty in the first place, that nobody would feel compelled to wind up in the sex work industry. That's what he believes. Um, Now, and there are other people. I think Chris Hedges, too, is uh, not with me on this issue. And I think Chris Hedges, I think for Chris Hedges, it might go back to more of his religious uh, beliefs because he is a religious man. And so I think maybe the religious beliefs feed his, his beliefs and his policy position on sex work. Um, but anyway, the point is, there is a disagreement on the left. There are many people on the left um, who take my position of legalizing, taxing, and regulating is the only rational approach. And then there are people who take the Chomsky position or the Chris Hedges position of like, well, actually, no, um, the religious right is actually correct on this by accident when they say that you know sex work should be banned. But if you kind of address the material conditions that lead to poverty in the first place, then functionally it will end up being banned, and you don't even necessarily need to ban it, I don't think, for it to be not in existence in their mind. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they do want laws on the books, but my interpretation, my perception of the Chomsky position was if you just address the poverty, sex work industry goes away. Me, I have a different view of human nature in the sense that I think um, there's always going to be sex, so there's always going to be sex work. And there are going to be people, regardless of how they came to the position where they get in the industry, there are going to be people who are in that industry. And I think that, yes, with some people, it might be based on some sort of past trauma or something that leads them into the sex field. 
Um, but with others, maybe not. With others, maybe they just enjoy it, and um, this is what they choose. And actually, when you go back and look at American history, some of the wealthiest women in history were in the sex work industry and owned brothels. And, um, but really, my main position, apart from the argument of just a freedom argument, let people do what they want if they're not hurting anybody else, apart from that, another reason to take this position is you actually massively, massively, massively reduce STD transmissions and you reduce violent crime associated with the field. And what you see here is a similar dynamic to what you see with drugs, where when you do a war on drugs and when you have drugs illegal, you push them underground, you create a black market, and then you have the cartels making all the money and you know selling the product. And whenever there's a dispute on the black market, everybody knows it's settled with guns in the street. If, if it was legalized, taxed, and regulated, if there's a dispute, you settle it in court wearing suits and ties. So big difference. You have a, you'll have a giant decrease in violence, a giant decrease in organized crime, and in the case of the sex work industry, a giant decrease in STDs if you have it legal, taxed, and regulated. It's actually already legal, taxed, and regulated um, in certain places in uh, Nevada, and they have, like, no STD transmissions, and people make a good living in the process of it. So, you know, I think a lot of this stems back to um, a more Victorian-era belief or, or, or a Puritan-era belief of, like, sex is evil and wrong, and it should only be done to reproduce with the one you love. Um, but I don't think that that's a, a very – I don't think that position is indicative of the overwhelming majority of human history. Um, I think that that's more of a – something that's more tied to old-school religious indoctrination. And the more removed you are from the religious indoctrination, the more – you view it through the eyes of it just is what it is. It's a part of human nature. Um, and so, therefore, there should be no negative taboo associated with it. And if there's no negative taboo associated with it, then people should be able to freely choose and make that decision. And in the process, again, we have the massive benefits of a giant decrease in crime and a giant decrease in STD transmissions. So uh, I want to commend Andrew Yang on this one. I think he's 100% right to talk about uh, decriminalizing sex work. He says on the part of the seller, um, I would go a step further and legalize tax and regulate at the national level. Um, but, and here's the deal, guys, I, and I honestly believe this, I don't think you could have a, a man running for president taking the position that I just espoused. Because I do think that they would be, like, maligned as, you know, as being some sort of uh, pervert weirdo um, who's for, like, a terribly immoral position I think that the only, t the only way we'd ever maybe get to that point is if you have uh, a charismatic female running for office and the charismatic female takes the position of, yeah, legalize tax and regulate sex work. But Andrew Yang started, the, started going down that track. He at least took a step in that direction. And the step is, he said, again, I'll read it for you, we should consider decriminalizing sex work on the part of the seller. It would be helpful in combating human trafficking. Many sex workers are themselves victims. So what he's saying is it should still be illegal for a buyer, somebody who says, are, are you X? Do you do this? That should be illegal, and they could be arrested. Um, but if it's the, the seller 
that they're not, they shouldn't be treated as criminal, they shouldn't be put behind bars, that should be decriminalized. Because oftentimes you see, it depends on what state you're in, I think, but if you watch the show Cops from back in the day or Live PD or whatever, um, in some states they would arrest the prostitute, the seller, and the buyer. And what he's saying is, no, no, it's not the the person who's selling is not really the problem here. That should be decriminalized because, you know, it's just in a, a primitive, draconian thing to arrest the seller in that instance. I mean, I'd, I'd argue it's probably primitive and draconian in both, but at least he's taking us a step down the path that I think makes more sense. Okay. Next. All right, Mayor Pete. So this video resurfaced on social media. Mayor Pete was running for state office in Indiana, a race he lost, by the way, by over 20 points. Um, during an interview, for campaigning for that position, he sounded very different on the issue of money and politics compared to how he sounds now. gets it because he acted on the debate stage recently like what i don't even know what you guys are talking about money influencing politicians what corruption bribery you guys are you guys reaching reaching that's come on dude come on why are you treating us like morons why are you treating us like idiots? And that's what he's doing. That's absolutely what he's doing. You heard him, uh, you know, with his, like, smug politician cadence and whatnot. You know, what I would say is, we don't want to go into a fight against Donald Trump with one hand tied behind our back. 
when the criticism is, hey man, these are de facto bribes. So if you accept it, you're supposed to do favors in return. That's corruption. When that's the criticism, it's not an adequate response to be like, yeah, bro, well, we got to win, bro. 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 At what, at what expense? At what cost? You know, selling off all of your principles, selling off all of your policy beliefs, so then what's the point of winning? If you're going to get in there and you're totally compromised and you're not going to do any of the good things that you are supposed to, in theory, do. So, I, I mean, he gets it, and that's what's so crazy about watching that clip. And by the way, here's the reality. I hate to tell everybody, but it's likely the case that the reason why he took that line in the first place is because he's new on the scene, and he couldn't raise the same amount of money in bribes as the other people who were running for the position. So it was politically opportunistic for him to just go, oh, I'll pretend to be the anti-establishment, anti-corruption candidate, and maybe that'll help me win. So for him, it was just the path of least resistance in a way. Like, oh, I'm not going to outraise them with the bribe, so I'll just, you know, I'll just uh, pretend to morally grandstand here. Now, when it comes to him running for president, ah, guess what? The only people who are really two of the top-tier candidates, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, they're not taking that money now. Elizabeth Warren just came to that position recently, but Bernie's had that position for a long time. So now Wall Street and the banks are just looking for candidates to give money to. Obviously, Joe Biden is one, but like, okay, Amy Klobuchar as well. But in the case of Pete, he's like, oh, me, me, I'm here. I'm here. I'm polling decently. Hey, hey, me, 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 me. And he thinks that it's the only way that he could really win because he ain't going to run a grassroots campaign. How's he going to run a grassroots campaign and outdo a grassroots behemoth like Bernie Sanders. He knows he can't out-fundraise Bernie Sanders grassroots style. So he's like, okay, I mean, this is my only place. This is my only option. i got to play the role of, uh, you know, the centrist guy and then act like this money isn't corrupting at all. Well, you voiced the argument that it is corrupting, and he did it all the way back in 2010. So, guys, in the case of Mayor Pete, just understand, he's a, he's a raw opportunist. He's just looking for an angle, looking for an angle to ride to power. That's it. That's what it is. And if you can't acknowledge that after looking at what he said in this recent debate and what he said back in 2010, then I don't know what to tell you because you're, you're blinding yourself on purpose. You're being dense on purpose. What Mayor Pete said in 2010 about the corrupting influence of money in politics is correct. The fact that he now has the polar opposite position, diametrically opposed position, tells you it was never a principal belief of his in the first place. It was just an angle. So you can't trust that guy. And if you think this is, oh, it's only one example. Well, it's a huge example because it's on corruption, which is like arguably the number one issue. He also did this on Medicare for All. When he was hopping in the race, he was like, oh, yeah, Medicare for All is definitely the way to go. I support Medicare for All. He went on MSNBC and he said, listen, this is just about shifting the Overton window as well. We don't go in watering down our position. We don't go in asking for a half measure. We go in by changing the debate and saying we want an NHS-style system, a single-payer-style system. That's what he used to say. Now what does he say? Oh, Medicare for all who wanted is my position, which is that watered-down position that he says you don't go in with up front. He's just looking for an angle. It's so obvious. It is unfathomable that anybody could look at this guy, know his history, and then go, yeah, I trust him. Trust him with what? Trust him when he says which thing because he said everything. In a very similar way to Donald Trump, 
and in a very similar way to Hillary Clinton. I'm interested in the consistent candidates. Hate to tell you, Pete. Okay, now we move on. We move on. We're going to talk about the house of cards that is the U.S. economy. We're beginning to see more signs of the economy on the brink. So this is uh, not a good situation, and we're on borrowed time. Just in, U.S. Steel closing mill laying off 1,500 Detroit workers. That was reported in The Hill. Um, Everybody knows the story of Detroit at this point. It was obliterated by corporate outsourcing deals, and, uh, you know, the city took a massive hit, struggling a lot. And then now you have 1,500 Detroit workers being laid off from U.S. Steel. Was it also, I'm not sure, was the cruise plant in Michigan? No, 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 that was Lordstown, Ohio. So that recently shut down. This steel plant is now shutting down. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Carrier, Remember when Donald Trump pretended to save um, the carrier company and all those factory jobs? And then over the course of the next year and a half, slowly but surely, they secretly outsourced anyway. And this is after the deal that Trump made to save carrier was just, you know, giving them a massive subsidy. So they took the subsidy, which means they hosed the taxpayers, and then they outsourced the jobs anyway. So it was a giant ruse. It was just a temporary move to make it look like Trump won, and then they turned around and did the thing where they outsourced anyway. So this is a guy who ran on the notion of, I'm going to fight outsourcing. I'm going to make sure we keep the jobs here. And I told you, you guys know this fact because I bring it up all the time, 93,000 jobs were outsourced in his first year as president, which is above and beyond that of Obama's last year. Obama's last year, there were 87,000 jobs that were outsourced. Trump's first year eclipsed that. And remember, Trump is the guy who ran as, I'm the anti-outsourcing guy. I'm going to keep the jobs here. I'm going to make sure that, you know, we don't have this, this downturn. So, but that's, we're just getting started here with that story. Look at this one. More than 9,300 stores closed in 2019. 9,300. 2019 was another bruising year for many American retailers, despite healthy consumers and a strong economy. Depends on how you measure it with that line, of course. This year, U.S. retailers announced 9,302 store closings, a 59% jump from 2018, and the highest number since CoreSite Research began tracking the data in 2012. Bankruptcies in the retail sector intensified this year, and uh, many struggling chains cut stores. That led to a spike in closings. Payless, Gymboree, Charlotte, Russ, I never heard of that store, and ShopGo uh, all filed for bankruptcy and closed a combined 3,720 stores, according to CoreSite. The majority of those were because of Payless, which filed for its second bankruptcy in February and shuttered 2,100 U.S. stores. Discount chain Fred's, Fred's filed for bankruptcy in 2017, in September, excuse me, I don't know why, where I got 2017 from, and closed 564 stores. 
Forever 21 also filed for bankruptcy that month and said it will close up to 178 stores. Forever 21's closures are not in Corsite's report since they are not finalized. Other retailers such as Ann Taylor, uh, Parent, Asina Retail, Family Dollar, GNC, Walgreens, Signet Jewelers, Victoria's Secret, and JCPenney slashed their store footprints to save money and prop up higher performing stores. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Now, you know, this is something I've, sp- I've talked about on this show for a long time, which is I don't even know what the catalyst of the next crash will be. I just know we're going to have another crash. And so there's a million things you could point to. For, you could literally point to the housing market, which is the thing that caused the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession in the first place in 2008, a little over a decade ago. It could be that again. It absolutely could be that again. No doubt about it. It could be the student loan debt crisis. We have over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. could be the credit card debt crisis. We have over a trillion dollars in credit card debt. Uh, it could have something to do with the derivatives market, which is a giant, unregulated casino capitalist marketplace that very few people even understand to begin with. Um, and now, apparently, we have a little bit of a retail crisis. Well, I mean, obviously, we have the crisis of outsourcing, which has been going on for a long time as well. And you have the crisis of automation, um, the end of retail stores and more of a move towards online shopping. So there's a, there's a giant upheaval going on in the economy right now. And dealing with it is going to be incredibly difficult, especially since – so the crash is coming. It's just a matter of when. It's a terrifying thing because if the crash comes with a Republican in office, they're going to do exactly the wrong thing, and they're going to exacerbate the crisis. Namely, they'll cut government spending, which will spiral us further and further down the deep, dark hole, and it'll be either a recession and maybe even a depression at some point. Um, So that's a giant problem. But even if you have a Democrat in office, we can't afford these milquetoast tweaks anymore. Like, that's what Obama did. He put a Band-Aid over a gaping, gangrenous wound. He bailed out GM, which I think was a good move, but he also bailed out Wall Street and didn't prosecute any bankers. I think that was a terrible move. And then he also did Dodd-Frank, the Dodd-Frank reform. Wasn't nearly strong enough. It did like 20% of everything it should have done. It didn't even bring back Glass-Steagall, which is absolutely necessary. Um, So uh, you need to have an FDR-style character in office when the crash hits, dog, or else we're, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And, you know, you're going to need something similar to the jobs program that FDR set up, the public works program. You're going to need new social safety net programs. You're going to need new universal programs to to soften the brunt of this. You're going to need health care. Like, the basics should be off the table, and then after that, we need to have a serious discussion as to the direction of the economy when the crash hits. And that's the thing. That's why you really need somebody in office who believes in in a new New Deal or a Green New Deal. Like when the crash hits, we could literally go right to that FDR playbook again and say, oh, he did the New Deal, built the infrastructure. If a crash hits again, we have the roadmap. Do a Green New Deal, build the infrastructure, green renewable technology, rebuild roads, bridges, airports, get people to work. We can do that, but it's a terrifying thought that you might have a Republican or a corporate Democrat in office when the crash hits. Um, And, you know, listen, they will – the thing is, every time there's a 
a recession or a depression, the partisans are going to be out there making their own case. And the Republicans will always say, they will always say, oh, no, the, no, the problem is, um, you know, the government was too involved in the first place. That's what led to the crash, is too much government involvement. And so let's go in the direction where there's no government. So let's, let's cut regulation more. Let's cut taxes for the rich more. Let's cut social spending more. So that'll be the argument they make. So in other words, exacerbate the crisis and pretend like that's the solution. That's what's going to happen. By the same uh, token, back in 2008 when we had the crash, one of the top-selling books was Ayn Rand because people were looking for why, why did the crash happen and what could we do to prevent another one? And they went in the exact wrong direction. And they went towards more of what would cause the problem. And so you just got to hope that that ideology is not there. Um, but no matter what happens, they're gonna, they're, there will be people saying that we need to go more in that direction when the crash hits. And so the left better knuckle up and get ready because we have to make the counterargument and we have to let everybody know we have the roadmap. The roadmap is what FDR did. And when the crash hits, we're going to have to go in a similar direction like he did. Um, and that's really the only way we can avert a worst-case scenario with tremendous suffering because there's too much going on in this economy that's completely unstable, and it doesn't help that our government is totally corrupted in the process as well. So prepare yourself. Okay, next. John Bolton is now officially lashing out at Trump's policy towards North Korea. Axios reports the following. The president's former national security advisor, who served until September, is speaking out ahead of an end-of-year timetable. If Kim Jong-un follows through on his threatened Christmas provocation, Bolton says the White House should do something that would be very unusual for this administration. Admit they got it wrong on North Korea. Quote, the idea that we are somehow exerting maximum pressure on North Korea is just unfortunately not true, Bolton said. For example, he said the U.S. Navy could start intercepting oil that is illegally being transferred to North Korea at sea. As Bolton sees it, the administration now has more of a rhetorical policy that it's unacceptable for North Korea to have a nuclear weapon that could hit America or its allies. If Kim thumbs his nose at the U.S., Bolton said, he hopes the administration will say, We've tried. The policy's failed. We're going to go back now and make it clear that in a variety of steps, together with our allies, when we say it's unacceptable, we're going to demonstrate we will not accept it. Bolton described his concerns about Trump's North Korea strategy in an interview with Axios late last week. He went on, or excuse me, he went significantly further than any of his previous remarks since leaving the administration. Now they go on to say this. Bolton, who has advocated for a more aggressive North Korea strategy, also criticized Trump for saying earlier this year that Kim's short-range missile tests don't bother him. Quote, when the president says, well, I'm not worried about short-range missiles, he's saying, I'm not worried about the potential risk to American troops deployed in the region or our treaty allies, South Korea and Japan. Here we go, baby. Here we go. John Bolton, 
tried to make the case for endless perpetual war from within the, the administration, didn't win on every front, but he won on others. For instance, he has drastically escalated uh, Venezuela. He drastically escalated Iran. I'm sure he was also behind the notion of continuing uh, to have a troop presence in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Syria. I'm sure he's behind the, uh, the increase in drone strikes, the massive increase in drone strikes that happened with Trump, 432% to be exact, increase in drone strikes. And remember, Obama had a 90% civilian death rate. I'm sure Trump's is about the same with 432% more drone strikes, so a lot more innocent deaths on his hands. Um, so I'm sure he had a say in all that. But now he didn't win out on North Korea. That's the one issue where Trump was like, eh, let's try to talk it out or whatever. Because Trump, you know, he doesn't have much of an ideology, but one of the things that is reliable about Trump is anti-Obamaism. So he just wants to be able to say, like, Obama bad, I did the opposite, and aren't I amazing? And so Obama couldn't get an official deal with North Korea, and so Trump is trying to do that, or he tried to do that. Now, John Bolton wants to blow him to smithereens. That's a funny way of putting it. <laughs> the double entendre there is pretty good. <laughs> That's what John Bolton wants to do. He wants to start a war. And uh, so now he wasn't able to, to influence it from within the White House. Now he's out of the White House, and he's like, oh, well, I'm going to make my case either way. So remember, and the article doesn't mention this, and it's bordering on journalistic malpractice that they don't mention this. But when John Bolton was in the White House, what did he say? He said, oh, as Trump was trying to negotiate with Kim, he goes, oh, we're looking at the Libya model for North Korea. You're looking at the Libya model. The Libya model is, okay, Gaddafi, you give us your weapons, and we won't invade you. Oh, thank you for giving us your weapons. Now we're going to topple you anyway. So Kim Jong-un, when he hears that, he knows what happens to Gaddafi, and he knows, like, oh, I can't trust the Americans. If I make a deal with the Americans, they'll just stab me in the back. Guys, we made a deal with Iran. And then we stabbed them in the back and pulled out of the agreement and sanctioned them out the wazoo. And now we're sanctioning medicine from going into their country, and people are dying because they can't get medicine. The country's on the, on the brink in large part because of our sanctions. That's not absolving the government there, but in large part because of our sanctions. So he saw what happened with Iran. He saw what happened with Libya. Why would he trust us? Why would he want to make a deal? Why would he do that? He knows, oh, as long as I have the weapons, then I have a deterrent. As long as I have the weapons, then I have a deterrent, and they can't mess with me. So it really, and there are some honest people in the government who will tell you, who are experts on this, who will tell you, oh, he's totally acting defensive. Not even a question. Not even a question. He's tit for tat with us. Not even a question. He's just saying, leave me alone. Now, that doesn't mean that he's good domestically. Of course he's not. He's a monster. But should we militarily try to topple him? I say, hell no, man. Hell no. So what was the line here that most shook me to my core? The idea that we are somehow exerting mass maximum pressure on North Korea is just unfortunately not true. Um, oh, and then he says, let's take the or intercept the oil that's illegally being transferred to North Korea at sea. Now, I don't know the details of that. It's possible that that's Chinese oil. In fact, I would guess it is because I think they're the only... That's the only country that they have relatively open, fine relationships with, with, relations with. Um, 
But guys, if you do that, you do understand you're putting people at risk. See, that's the thing. John Bolton portrays everything as like, I'm, I'm the straight shooter, and I'm good, the one who's going to fix the problem. You failed at everything you've ever tried ever. This is one of the architects of the Iraq war. It, first of all, that war was criminal, full stop, but it's also strategically probably one of the most pathetic embarrassments of all time. And now he's saying, well, trust me on North Korea, and yeah, why not uh, you know, seize the shipments of the oil? Guys, if, he, if we did that, you're forcing North Korea's hand. What do you think? They are much more likely to lash out and do something militarily that we're not going to like in a situation like John Bolton is describing. So hilariously, as he argues like, oh man, this is not working, this has failed, he's putting people in more danger. He's putting Seoul, South Korea in much more danger. Now, they're not going to attack the U.S. because I don't think they have the capability, but even if they could, they wouldn't do it because they know they'd be nuked in a minute if they attacked us. But South Korea? Yeah, you're threatening a hot war. You're threatening some sort of military conflict because you want to play Mr. Tough Guy. Like, oh yeah, I'll show them. He's making everybody significantly less safe. And this guy should be locked up in The Hague. He's a war criminal. He's a war criminal. He was the architect of an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, that killed minimum 200,000 civilians over there, killed thousands of our own men and women, and wasted $7 trillion. And now he's going to try to dictate foreign policy with North Korea. Dude, we know your playbook. We know it's just invade, bomb everything in sight. The dude has never met a war he didn't like. And he's putting everybody at risk in the process. Now, here's the little cherry on top in this story. Guys, it is overwhelmingly likely that the media will treat him like some sort of objective expert. And it's overwhelmingly likely that the Democrats will pick up on John Bolton's line of attack and agree with him and use him to bash, bash Trump and the administration. This is one of the few issues where you could say Trump is fine because he's not trying to start a war with North Korea. I was pissed at him when early on, before they had the talks, he was like, I want to rain fire and fury on them. I was like, oh my God, no, stop. Stop tweeting that like you want to go to war with everybody. Don't do that. That's really dangerous and not cool. But when he started talking to them, like when he met Kim Jong-un, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. We need to move away from war. So yes, you meet with your enemies. You absolutely meet with your enemies. Um, now, John Bolton didn't like that. But now they're going to use John Bolton as a proxy to attack Trump, and the Democrats are going to line up behind Bolton and act like he's the truth teller, and they're going to act like Trump is wrong. And this is the contradiction at the heart of Democratic politics at the moment, which is they simultaneously argue Trump is an evil, crazy, thin-skinned maniac who shouldn't have his finger anywhere near the button, and oh yeah, he should attack people a lot more. No, 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 which is it? You have to pick one. Oh, and by the way, Manchurian candidate. So he's an evil tyrant dictator who's insane, who should never have control of a military, and he's controlled by Vladimir Putin at the same time. And, oh yeah, he should start bombing North Korea, <laughs> and we should give him $80 billion more for his military budget. Oh, so bad. So bad. They're going to use this guy as an expert, and he's one of the most dangerous people in the country and one of the biggest war criminals in the country. He belongs in a cell. He belongs behind bars at best. And um, instead, he will be treated like an objective expert, and the media will hang on his every word, and they'll act like he's the one who's keeping it real when he says, yeah, we should escalate to flat-out hot war with North Korea.
You've destroyed enough in your life, John Bolton. Please just go away. Okay. Now I'm going to hit you with some substance on the healthcare system. All right, here we go, baby. Here we go. According to Gallup, 7 million people have lost their health insurance under the Trump administration. Um, You guys have heard me make that point before. I think it's a devastating fact, and it's not discussed nearly enough. Those are 7 million human beings who lost their health insurance. Um, If I was a, a Democratic representative, I would bash Trump and the Republicans over the head with this fact every day, and I'd do everything I can in my power to change that. Um, But that's not the only shocking new fact about our health insurance system and our health care system in this country. I have some numbers for you here that are just, you know, that will make any reasonable person gasp and their jaw hit the floor at how backwards everything is. So Bob Henley in Salon writes the following. The average premium for family coverage has increased 22% over the last five years and 54% over the last 10 years, significantly more than either workers' wages or inflation, according to an annual survey by the Kaiser Foundation of Employer-Sponsored Health Coverage. It's worth noting noting that would reflect the sector of employer-provided health care programs that centrist Democrats like Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar maintain Americans love so much. The Kaiser survey provides a uniquely detailed analysis and is based on more than 2,000 interviews with public and private firms. It reported that annual premiums for employer-sponsored health care plans reached $20,576 this year, an increase of 5%, with workers on average paying $6,015 towards the cost of their coverage. More. Deductibles have increased by 36% over the last five years and 100% over the last 10 years. Deductibles have doubled in price since just 2009. That's unbelievable. Um, In a study that was published in May of this year in the Journal of general internal medicine. Researchers concluded that 137 million Americans struggled with medical debt. That is, that's like 40% of the country struggled with medical debt. 40% of the country, Jesus Christ. In August, U.S. News and World Report um, said that drug prices, or excuse me, drugs prescribed to treat multiple sclerosis, which costs $8,000 to $11,000 per year, that's the range of what they cost, in the 1990s, now cost $80,000 a year. The price of drugs for multiple 
sclerosis went up 10 times. Unfathomable, man. Also, when it comes to borrowing, $88 billion was borrowed in 2018 to cover health care costs. $88 billion. This is why, what's that crazy? I don't know if it's the majority of, of fundraising on GoFundMe is for medical bills. A record 25% of Americans say that they or a family member have put off treatment for a serious medical condition in the past year. 25% because of the cost, up from 19% a year ago, and the highest in the history of Gallup's trend. So in 2018, 19% of Americans put off treatment because of the cost. 2019, 25% of Americans said, I want to get something, but I can't. Cost too much. And then, of course, there's the fact that we've referenced on the show a million times, we have 500,000 medical bankruptcies in this country every year. And we have um, up to 45,000, 32,000 to 45,000 deaths every year from lack of coverage. So understand, guys, these facts I just gave you, these numbers I just gave you, are just so incredibly out of whack with the rest of the industrialized world. These are like nightmare, worst-case scenario kind of numbers. And your government is doing nothing to fix it, and in fact, they're actively moving in the wrong direction. Obamacare was a terrible reform, and it had many problems. But it definitely was a little step in the right direction, because at least you had, what, up to 30 million more people who were covered? Well, now with the Trump administration and um, the repeated knives to the back of Obamacare, now, again, 7 million people have lost insurance under Donald Trump, and prices are skyrocketing yet again, whether it's the pharma prices, whether it's the actual health insurance plans. And again, a lot of these plans can be expensive and still not cover that much. That's how broken our system is. And I don't, if you hear these numbers and you're not shocked, you're not stunned, you're not immediately on the side of Medicare for all, I don't know what to tell you, man. Nothing makes the case better for Medicare for all than just knowing the current facts about our abysmal health care and health insurance system. That's the reality. Now, you mix that in with the fact that the Commonwealth Fund has the U.S. ranked 11th out of 11 when it comes to uh, the health care systems of uh, countries in the developed world, and, of course, the top are just all riddled with various universal health care systems. I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, man. This is – it couldn't be any, any more clear. This is as clear as it will ever get. And don't let the overwhelming bombardment of propaganda change your mind on this because we all know what the right answer is. We all know what the correct answer is. This isn't a tough one. <laughs> this isn't a difficult one. This doesn't require a genius to figure it out. Um, but this system is criminal, and anybody who's not for a top-down reform just completely scrap this trash and, and do the right thing, then, again, I don't know what to say. It couldn't be any more obvious. Now, by the way, all these numbers I just gave you, don't think you're going to see this on CNN 
or MSNBC or Fox News or even the nightly news. They're not going to give you these in-depth numbers that I just gave you. But I hope some of these are permanently lasered into your memory and you can bring them up to your friends and your family because um, the status quo is just unacceptable. And the fact that anybody's comfortable with it and the pharma companies are and the executives of the health insurance companies are, the fact that anybody's okay with it is borderline criminal. Okay. Next. There's been uh, quite a disagreement in the Republican Party and also in the Democratic Party. Um, In the respective parties, they're bickering over how to move forward with impeachment. What exactly do we do? What exactly are the parameters of the trial in the Senate? And um, what's interesting is Mitch McConnell has settled on the idea that he wants a quick trial. Nancy Pelosi has settled on the idea that she wants a long trial. That's funny because I think they both messed up in their calculation as to what would be best for their parties. I think a longer thing is better for um, Republicans. I think a shorter one is better for um, Democrats. So I think they're both wrong in how they interpreted what's best for them. Now, President Trump, even though he didn't want to be impeached, that just so everybody knows, he's not some sort of grand chess master. Okay, he, he's not seeing all the pieces on the board, and he's like, well, this would be good for me. No. But he didn't want to be impeached, but now that he is, he is trying very hard to flip it and use it for his advantage. Um, so look at the reporting here in The Hill. This lays it out a little bit. Trump has long cast himself as a Washington outsider, unwelcome by establishment politicians, And allies say he is likely to use the partisan impeachment votes to entrench that image and energize supporters on the campaign trail. Quote, I think it plays into an overriding message that I know the president and his team have been pushing for a while now, one former White House official said. While the House House vote on Wednesday made Trump just the third U.S. president to be impeached, he will be the first to seek re-election with the notorious label attached to his name. The president's campaign has already set out to portray impeachment as a boon to its strategy. It has released limited but favorable polling data showing impeachment is unpopular in certain swing districts, and the campaign boasted eye-popping fundraising totals on the heels of Wednesday's vote. Gary Kobe, the campaign's digital director, tweeted Friday that more than $10 million in donations had rolled in during the previous 48 hours. Guys... Keep it real. Those numbers are insane. $10 million in donations in two days? That's a lot of fundraising. So this is having the effect that I thought it would have, which is it kind of rallies his base to him. And they become more set and more energized to vote because they feel like, oh, this is verifying the narrative that 
the deep state and the do-nothing Democrats and the establishment are trying to take down Trump because Trump is such a fighter for the people. That's how they're perceiving this. Now, I will say, there is an out for the Democrats. There is an out. And they're kind of semi-taking it at the moment, but it's going to change. So Nancy Pelosi right now is sitting on these articles of impeachment. It passes the House. She's sitting on it. She hasn't sent it to the Senate yet. And the contention is, well, we need better rules for the trial because the rules as they're constructed right now would make it an unfair trial, so we need better rules for the trial. So come on, Mitch, get your stuff together, and then I'll send it. You guys have heard me explain this before, but I have to explain it again. I think she should permanently sit on the articles of impeachment and never send it to the Senate. And as you never send it to the Senate, the entire time, point the finger at McConnell and say, it's not me holding it up, it's him. He's the reason why it's not in the Senate yet. Don't talk to me about it, talk to him about it. He rigged the process, the rules are terrible, I'm trying to send it, but what, am I, what can I do? It's not on me, it's on McConnell. What do you want me to tell you? Now why, why do I say that? Because a new poll just came out, post-impeachment, post-impeachment. Impeachment support went up four points. So, it was 48%. Now it's all the way up to uh, 52%. That's as good as it's going to get for the Democrats. Best case scenario, let's say best case scenario, you go out there, you blame McConnell, and you just keep repeating, president's impeached, the president's impeached, the president's impeached, the president's impeached. Then maybe you could get all the way, if you're lucky, to 55% support for impeachment. But the second those articles actually get to the Senate, and we have the trial, and the trial ends. His approval rating is going up 5 to 10 percentage points. Easy. Easy. I bet a lot of money on that right now. In fact, if you're in Vegas and you're allowed to put a bet on stuff like this, <laughs> place a bet on that because you're going to make money. You are absolutely going to make money in that scenario. The second he's acquitted in the Senate, he will do a national bragging tour, puff his chest out, and say, I told you... The deep state couldn't take down Trump. The do-nothing Democrats couldn't take down Trump. They had their Mueller witch hunt. It failed. Now they have their, their uh, Russia, Russia gate failed. Ukraine gate failed. I did nothing wrong. I had a per- perfect conversation. Joe Biden is corrupt. Hunter Biden is corrupt. We're going to investigate the Bidens, folks. That's what we're going to do. So given that we know that he's going to get acquitted, it's a 100% guarantee You couldn't get any Republicans in the House, and you think you're going to get over 20 in the Senate? Please, not going to happen. Not even close. So since you know he's going to get acquitted, why would you be in a rush to acquit him? And he's out there all over the place on Twitter like, send send it, send the articles to the House, send it, please. Please send it ASAP to the House. Because he wants his name cleared. He wants to be acquitted. And I don't think he realizes this, but also his poll numbers will go up at the time. But he, he just wants to get it cleared. He doesn't like the stain on his name of impeachment. So you already impeached him. Take it and run. That's it. Over. Now, every time you give an interview, yeah, the president's been impeached. He's been impeached. Oh, it's Mitch McConnell's blocking it from going to the Senate. Ask him. Well, these Republicans are really unreasonable, and they're really obstructionist. They won't even have the trial. It's on them. It's on McConnell. I don't know why he's blocking it. But the president's been impeached. Did I mention the president's been impeached? That's what you do. And that's the best-case scenario for Dems. Because if you never give him the political benefit of acquittal, 
then his poll numbers never go back up like that. Keep it, keep, take your 52% and run for the hills, man. It's over. It's done so. You ain't getting any better than this. This is the peak situation. I think they messed up in the first place by even doing impeachment. But now that they did it, okay, well, take the impeachment and run. Don't even send it to the Senate where you know he's going to get acquitted. And people will scream there, oh, my God, it was a deeply political move. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Everything McConnell does is political, too. But take it and run. That's it. It's over. It's over. Because I think that Trump knows he didn't want to be impeached. But now that he's been impeached, yes, he's going to flip it for his advantage. Absolutely he's going to do that. So just don't give him the benefit of the acquittal. That's it. But having said all that, they're going to. They're going to. After Christmas, she's going to send the article to the Senate. They're going to have the trial, whether it's a long one or a short one. I don't know. That'll be worked out. Uh, he's going to be acquitted. Then his numbers are going to go up. And then the Democrats are going to, you know, complete the total, you know, destruction of their blind, leading the blind, non-plan here. So they're not going to do it. Right now, she's accidentally doing it, temporarily doing the right thing. But she will send him eventually, and Trump will be acquitted, and his numbers will go up. But he's going to flip it, and you're going to help him flip the argument by acquitting him, by sending the articles. So anyway, that's the situation we're in right now. Um, if the Republicans were really smart about this, which, again, McConnell's showing he's not, he doesn't get a part of this. Trump might get it, but McConnell doesn't get it. Um, if the Republicans were really intelligent about this, they would literally give Nancy Pelosi exactly what she's asking for, which is witnesses called in the trial in the Senate. Because I'm very confident that if you call the witnesses, because we've already seen what happens when they call witnesses, guys, because they called witnesses in the impeachment inquiry. And the Democrats barely moved the needle at all when it came to um, support for impeachment. If anything, in some polls, it went the other way. It went down. Their support went down, dropped six points from when the impeachment inquiry started to when we just had the vote. So, okay, call whatever witnesses you want. These guys are goofy. They, they're not saying anything convincing. They're, their whole strategy, how dare you say? How dare you say? That's their whole strategy. We've seen them. And they oh, Ukraine, well, we need to stand up to Russia by giving the money to Ukraine. How dare Trump not give the money to Ukraine? Oh, he acted in a very wrong way. I can't believe he did that. They, we had this already, the impeachment inquiry, the witnesses, they didn't land. None of them landed. It was embarrassing. So if McConnell was smart, he'd say, yeah, you know what, fine, let's all your, call all your witnesses. That's fine. And the Republicans could flip it in the trial in the Senate, make everything about Joe Biden, make everything about Hunter Biden. And then throughout the process of the impeachment trial, the Republicans can make it seem like Joe Biden's on trial and Hunter Biden's on trial, and it's not even Donald Trump who's been impeached. So if the Republicans were really on point here, they'd be like, sure, Call all the witnesses you want. We'll call some people, too, to talk about how corrupt Hunter Biden and Joe Biden are and the deep state and whatnot. And then we'll drive our numbers up that way. And then Trump will drive his numbers up and do his bragging tour when he's acquitted. So, but who knows? Who knows if it'll end up being a short um, trial in the Senate or a long trial in the Senate. But either way, eventually Nancy Pelosi will send these articles of impeachment and Trump will be acquitted and it'll be a very happy day for him. Uh, and not a very good day for the country. So there's your like way too detailed breakdown of what's about to happen. Okay, next. Okay, here we go, baby. This one's a really interesting one. 
there's a Republican state legislator in Washington who was just exposed. And he was exposed as the textbook definition of a terrorist. So you don't believe me? Well, uh, prepare yourself here. Washington State Representative Matt Shea, a Republican, participated in an act of domestic terrorism when he took part in the armed Bundy militia takeover of the Oregon uh, Malhauer National Wildlife Refuge in 2016, according to a report issued by the Washington State House and referred to the FBI. The 108-page report said that Shea began working with militia leader Eamon Bundy in November 2015 on the planning and preparation of the six-week takeover, which saw dozens of armed supporters descend on the rural uh, refuge in remote eastern Oregon. The standoff ended with dozens of arrests and the fatal FBI shooting of militia member Robert Lavoie Finnicum, who was killed while trying to evade authorities. Shea created a military-style plan for the takeover and used his status as a lawmaker to meet with law enforcement as he gathered intelligence before meeting with Bundy and the armed protesters, according to the report. Two other Republicans, former State Representative Graham Hunt and former GOP Lands Commissioner nominee Steve McLaughlin, were also part of the planning, the planning of the occupation, the report said. Shea had claimed to a House ethics investigator that he merely traveled to the refuge on a fact-finding mission, but after the refuge ended and Finnicum was shot, Shea wrote on Facebook, and I quote, after much prayer, I'm afraid violence might be necessary to take our country back. The report said that Shea, who was elected in 2008 and hosts a weekly show on the American Christian Network, was also involved in the standoff with FBI agents at the Bundy Ranch in Nevada in 2014 and multiple other armed conflicts. Shea was associated with multiple armed militias and used his prominence to promote armed conflicts against authorities, the report said, detailing that Representative Shea, as a leader in the Patriot Movement, planned, engaged in, and prom promoted a total of three armed conflicts of political violence against the United States government in three states outside the state of Washington over a three-year period. In one conflict, Representative Shea led covert strategic pre-planning in advance of the conflict. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Wow, man. Holy crap. Holy crap. So he spoke about this, and he went on InfoWars, a very, you know, that's probably the kindest outlet to him given these facts now. They're the only people who are going to be, like, super kind to him. Um, Shea called the investigation, the state's investigation into him, a, quote, Marxist smear campaign. Come on, man. And, quote, political warfare according to a Maoist insurgency model. I'm willing to bet that the people who, some of the people who did this investigation into Shea don't even know anything about Mao. And he's saying it's a Maoist insurgency model. Come on, man. Well, I mean, what a, what a weak response that is. Now, he's also, like, quite literally advocated for war against enemies of Christianity. And he's pro-theocracy. 
which, by the way, I also find hilarious, the contradiction at the heart of his beliefs, because he's, he, you know, he's messing around with all these, like, literal domestic terror, anti-government organizations, these far-right groups that are probably sympathetic to, like, a sovereign citizens-like ideology, which is the idea that, like, the sheriff is the highest authority and their, you know, the federal government basically doesn't exist and isn't legitimate and all that stuff. But he's got these anti-government extremist views, but then also he's pro-theocracy. And, you know, as I'm sure many of you know, theocracy requires massive government. It requires a giant government. It requires a government that gets in every little nook and cranny of your social life and your private life. So which is it? Do you want a big government theocracy or do you want, like, basically no federal government at all and, like, a very tiny government that's just, you know, totally hands-off, libertarian-type paradise where the sheriff is the highest command? There's no regulation and very few laws and whatnot. So there's a massive contradiction there. But listen, the main point here to take away, and this is the first thing that popped into my mind, is could you imagine for a second, we have to do the old switcheroo test here because it really is telling. Oh, and also he's refusing to resign. He's saying, no, I'm not going to resign, and this is a witch hunt, and I'm staying. So see, Trump, it looks like Republicans have learned the lesson of the Trump era, which is you could throw out the old playbook. There is no rule book that's like, that's set in stone as to how politics works. No, you could override anything, really. So, um, but he's refusing to step down, but could you imagine for a second, just flip the, the terror organization. Imagine you have somebody who's in the government who was quite literally part of al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Or you, you know what? Don't even go that far. Don't even go that far. Let's go Muslim Brotherhood. We'd never hear the end of it. I mean, you have Republicans who accuse people wrongly of being in the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, obviously, they said that about Obama. Oh, he's a Marxist and he's the Muslim Brotherhood. Ridiculous, over-the-top absurd. But imagine we had evidence. We had proof that you had a Muslim legislator who, who was in the Muslim Brotherhood. There would be an outcry across the entire country. And everybody would be, you have to step down. What are you talking about? This is insane. Imagine we had, you know... I don't know, a Black Panther who had engaged in a racial act of terror in one way or another? Pretty sure there would be a larger outcry than this. But this guy, you know, good old, good old-fashioned right-wing Christian boy. And so, you know, he gets caught with all this stuff, and he's just like, yeah, um, I'm not going anywhere. I like them apples. What? <laughs> You're not going anywhere. It, it's, he's literally a domestic terrorist now working as a, as a politician. And everybody's just kind of shrugging it off. Like, yeah, what are you going to do? Now, you know, he didn't actually kill anybody, um, but he did partake in, you know, the illegal um, takeover and occupation of a government building for a personal grievance that these people had over land with one of their friends, um, and he did, it's very possible he pointed his firearm at uh, police officers, like in, uh, in the 2014 situation in Nevada with the standoff, there were a lot of these far right-wing militia guys who were literally, they had the cops in their scopes. Their snipers were pointed at them, and they didn't pull the trigger, thank God, but they were like overt terrorist threats, we're not going to listen to you. The guns are pointed at you, all that stuff. And it did come to a, a firefight, or at least one of, the, one of the militia guys got killed. 
And in the wake of that guy getting killed, this guy came out and just said, no, it's time for us to do violence against law enforcement, which, of course, by the way, leads to the other massive um, piece of hypocrisy here, which is, as a general rule, you have Republicans in the U.S. are very, very pro-law enforcement, very pro-cop. Um, I mean, now with the FBI, it's a different story, and the CIA is a different story, because those organizations, those agencies don't like Trump, and they like Trump more than those organizations, so they kind of flipped on the FBI and the CIA, at least temporarily, I'd say. Um, but they've never had an issue. With the cops, they've almost always taken the side of being pro-cop. But now you have somebody who very likely may have literally pointed a firearm at a cop, and he threatened to kill law enforcement and called for violence repeatedly. Now he's a politician, and my guess is if you turn on Fox News, there won't exactly be outrage over this story. But yeah, I mean, this is a, a far-right guy who was able to actually get himself some power, get an elected position, and, you know, you're just not going to hear much about this story. It's, it's going to be, you're going to hear it here, maybe you saw some articles about it, but you're not going to hear much about it on the nightly news or on CNN or MSNBC, definitely not on Fox News, even though in another situation, if it was like a black group that was hostile to police officers, you'd never hear the end of it. You'd never hear the end of it. They, they made a big stink about the new Black Panthers were like carrying weapons and on protecting a line for voting. And this was back during like the 08 election or some shit. And they went nuts. They went nuts. Here you have a situation where it's way above and beyond that, where he may have literally pointed his gun at law enforcement and called for political violence against the government. And you're not going to hear any of it, again, for sheer ideological partisan reasons. But it is wild that he was just like, yeah, I, cool, you got that investigation done. Anyway, um, it's a Marxist plot. It's a Maoist insurgency. And... Um, I don't care what you said. I'm staying. Compare this to the fact that uh, Katie Hill was just thrown under the bus because she had some naughty pictures, because she was into some kinky stuff behind the scenes, and Democratic leadership was like, oh, you must go, step down. And here you have a dude who's like, I, yeah, I threatened to kill cops. <laughs> I was part of a literal uh, arm takeover of a government building. And you could piss off if you don't like it. Very bizarre state of affairs in American politics, to say the least. Okay. Matt Bevin, we're going to make fun of this guy. We have a giant scandal involving the ex-GOP governor of Kentucky, Matt Bevin. That's this guy right here. Take a look at this. This is the New York Post reporting. Kentucky Democrats are demanding a special prosecutor investigation of former Republican Governor Matt Bevin for the hundreds of pardons he handed to convicted criminals on his last day in office this week. Bevin's more than 400 pardons and commutations, some for people guilty of gruesome murders and rapes, came to light Wednesday, a day after his successor, Democrat Andy Bashir, was sworn in as governor. One of the pardons went to convicted murderer Patrick Baker, whose brother hosted a fundraiser for Bevin in 2018 that netted $21,500 for the then-governor's campaign. We want to make sure that there's not this pay-for-play going on with gubernatorial pardons, said Representative Chris Harris, or Representative Chris... State Representative Chris Harris told the Louisville Courier-Journal. Okay, so over 400 pardons, 
how many of those pardons were of nonviolent offenders? Less than 100. The overwhelming majority of those pardons were for violent offenders. In many instances, these people who were pardoned were relatives of high-dollar GOP fundraisers. Again, this guy gave $21,500 to his campaign in 2018. And actually, one of the articles said that he was given money to, like, wipe out the remaining campaign debt that his campaign had. So this guy needed to get rid of his uh, campaign debt, and you got, you know, a GOP sugar daddy coming in, and he's like, hey, listen, dog, I could take care of that for you, but what are you going to do for me? You know, I have a family member who's in a little bit of trouble at the moment. Guys, one of the people he pardoned was convicted of raping a nine-year-old. You have murderers, you have rapists. All these pardons. Now, if it was a situation where, you know, you go through them and you go, well, in all these cases, there was a reasonable doubt. That's one thing. But it doesn't look like that was the case. It doesn't look like it's the case that in all these cases there was reasonable doubt. No, it looks like he's doing political favors. Because he's a total corrupt sellout. And that's where we are. So now, you know, some violent people are roaming the streets. You know, and listen, one of the criticisms of the left is like, oh, they're soft on crime. No, I'm tough on crime. That should be crimes. (laughs) Any crimes that should be crimes, I'm tough on those crimes. Any crimes that shouldn't be crimes, I'm as soft as it gets because they shouldn't be crimes and all those people should be let out. Every single nonviolent drug offender should be freed today. But people who are guilty of murdering and raping and the evidence is overwhelming – I'm pretty tough on those crimes. They should be behind bars. What Bevin's doing is, yeah, I don't care. I don't care what they were guilty of. I'm going to free them if you've donated to me. I'm going to pay back the bribe. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. He came out afterwards because everybody's like, what are you doing? He came out after he did a tweet thread and he went like, oh, no, see, uh, people deserve a second chance. But he said, oh, no, 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 the case that everybody's talking about with that nine-year-old girl, her hymen was intact, so that's why he didn't, he didn't do it. Pretty sure the jury was presented with a hell of a lot more evidence than just what he said there. And I'm pretty sure that they made a much more rational decision based on all of the evidence than this guy did. And I'm also pretty sure he's just trying to do a cover story for the fact that he's insanely corrupt and he has no core, he has no moral beliefs, no ethical beliefs, he has no soul. And, uh, well, nobody has a soul because that's made up. But I digress from that. (laughs) He's a bad dude, man. And, you know, I would bring this up. If I was a Democrat running at any state office, even at the federal level, I'd bring this up. Be like, do you want the party in power, who pardons rapists of nine-year-olds because they took money for their political campaigns, well, then the Republicans are are your party. If you don't want that party, there's another one for you. Okay. Two more stories, and then we're done, and um, 
we will be back on Monday. This is the last show before Christmas. Then we'll be back next Monday, but then be gone again on Thursday for, the, for, for New Year's. So you'll have no Thursday shows for this week and next week, but you will have Monday shows. Okay, next. Saudi Arabia was caught red-handed spreading fake news. And uh, possibly, you might even be able to call this, you know, meddling in U.S. elections. <gasps> Where have you heard that uh, phrase before? Only about a million times in regards to the Mueller investigation and Russiagate. So the Daily Beast says the following. Twitter removed almost 90,000 accounts linked to the Saudi Arabian government that were found to be part of a propaganda campaign. The company announced uh, on Friday. According to Bloomberg, the accounts were amplifying messages favorable to Saudi authorities by engaging in tweets about politics, specifically about Iranian uh, sanctions and the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Researchers from the Stanford Internet Observatory traced the origin of the tweets to SMAAT, SMAT, SMAT, however you pronounce it, a Saudi-based social media company that is controlled by the Saudi royal family. The accounts of the company and the company's senior executives have also been suspended, Twitter said. This comes after two ex-Twitter employees and a Saudi national were charged by the U.S. for helping the Saudi government spy on dissidents on the social media platform. Wow. One of the individuals charged was an executive with Smate who worked on behalf of the royal family. Oh, boy. Okay, so this is exactly what Russia is accused of doing. And in the case of Russia, there is so much less evidence. And in the case of Saudi Arabia, it's apparently overwhelming. And by the way, there was a PBS Frontline documentary on Saudi Arabia, and they went into tremendous detail about this exact thing. And it's been obvious for years that they've been doing this. Nobody is, like, organically on the side of the Saudi regime in the case of Jamal Khashoggi, where this poor guy was murdered, nobody's like out there like, oh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia did nothing wrong. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. So it should have been weird when there were all these accounts tweeting stuff like that. It should be weird when all these accounts come out of nowhere and they act like, you know what's wonderful? Increased sanctions on Iran, a country that's already struggling and this massively hurts their civilian population, but I think it's a good idea. That's not organically happening. It's just not. So all this pro-Saudi Arabia stuff, by the way, nobody is saying these things otherwise. They have no case. They have no point. They don't have a strong argument on their side. They're obviously a brutal, theocratic, authoritarian regime. So you buy support in a situation like that. Now, look at the response you got when you, what was it, three uh, Russians who were indicted. They'll never see a day in court, by the way, in the U.S. because they don't live in the U.S., but for running the troll farms. Well, come to find out, the troll farm was really just to make money. It was clickbait, just to make money. And they pumped up all these different candidates. It wasn't like, oh, my God, they're only trying to help Donald Trump. And it wasn't effective. I get way more impressions on one tweet than these guys got on all, everything they ever did. And uh, it was, you know, a big national scandal. But you know who's really guilty of the stuff we always accuse Russia of being guilty of? The United States of America. We created a fake Twitter in Cuba to try to get them to overthrow the government, to try to get the people to be subversive and overthrow their government. That's what we did. We want to talk about election meddling. We're trying to overthrow a government through social media. Um, in the case of Saudi Arabia, 90,000 accounts linked to the Saudi government. 
So it's a case of projection. Now, am I saying that, oh, Russia has never done anything to influence other? Of course they have. Of course they have. But what I am saying is whatever we do is way above and beyond. Whatever Saudi Arabia does is way above and beyond. And it's obvious. It's so obvious, man. But you're not going to hear a peep about this. You're not going to hear much about this at all. There's going to be no congressional investigation. There's going to be no Saudi gate about this. None of that. Why? They're an ally. If you're an ally, we let you get away with anything. We let you get away with anything. No big deal. You're our boy. We got business uh, deals together. You know, we got the petrodollar situation going on. You got a lot of oil, man. We need that oil. We'll be your protection. We'll send American men and women to die, and we'll arm you to bomb babies in Yemen. Whatever, whatever. It's all fine and dandy because that's the way it works. That's the way the system works. So, um, weird. You don't hear nearly as much noise about this compared to the Russia situation. And this, they were caught red-handed, proven, pushing out bogus narratives, literally apologizing for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, taking the side of the murderers. That's what they were doing. Seems like a bit of a scandal to me. And by the way, I never knew that, what it said at the end of the article here, the thing about how Twitter employees were taken down for spying on behalf of Saudi Arabia. So they literally, like, infiltrated social media networks and spied on their dissidents. We are living in a futuristic sci-fi novel, and it's definitely dystopian, and this is definitely terrifying. All right, final story of the day, everybody. President Trump name-dropped Tulsi Gabbard at his rally yesterday. Let's see what he had to say. Come on, Jill Stein's not an agent of Russia. Tulsi's not an agent of Russia. This is ridiculous. This is, it, listen, on that, what are you going to do? He's right. He's correct about that. They're not agents of Russia, and all Hillary and her team does is just, oh, just anybody who we don't like, we're just going to accuse them of being, you know, Russian puppets or whatever. They even did it to Bernie recently. She did it to Bernie on Howard Stern's show recently. Oh, Putin wanted him to win. Like, this is, she has nothing substantive to say, so she goes to that. And it's just, it's so transparent at this point. If you don't see through it, I don't know what to tell you. You're so far off in the weeds, it's embarrassing. But notice, he's like, oh, she voted president. Ah, I like, I respect that. It's good for her. Hey, Don, do you know what else she did? 
Now, listen, I, me personally, I told you guys I would have voted yes on Article 1 of impeachment because he definitely did the thing that they accused him of doing, which is abusing his power, which is holding up aid um, to get an investigation, to get dirt on Joe Biden and his son. Now, by the way, I am not for the aid that we're giving to Ukraine. I'm not in favor of that. But that's neither here nor there because that's not the question. That's not what we're discussing here. What we're discussing is should it be okay for a president to withhold aid to try to get something for his own personal political benefit? And the answer to that is obviously no. So he definitely did it. I have issues with, you know, they should have never gone down this road of impeachment in the first place. And if they did go down this road of impeachment, they should have done it over emoluments and corruption and genocide in Yemen and a million other things, okay? But when you actually, when it comes time for the day to vote, and there were, obviously this is the strategy that they're going to do, and there's no if, ends, ends, ifs, or buts about it, what am I going to do? He's guilty on Article 1. So I would, I would have said he's guilty. I would have voted yes for that article of impeachment. Article 2, I would have voted no, because I don't think he's guilty of the thing they're saying he's guilty of. Oh, you obstructed the impeachment inquiry. No, he didn't. He's taking it to the court, and I think that's 100% allowed. So, but anyway, I digress. So, in other words, I disagree with Tulsi's vote there, present. I don't agree with it. And I actually think her reasoning was pretty poor, because she basically said, like, we're really divided as a country, and we need to come together, and I'm standing up for the center. I don't care if we're, it's, we're divided. The question is, did he do it or did he not do it? We would be massively divided in Congress on Medicare for all. Does that mean it's inherently bad? No. That's not, I, don't, I don't like the idea, oh, I'm just standing up for the center. I don't like that at all. However, she voted president. He's giving her credit for that, which obviously now corporate Democrats and the media are like, aha, see, Tulsi's really terrible across the board. She also censured Donald Trump. And that he didn't talk about, that he might not even know about, because I don't know how much that was reported. And, but the media won't talk about that either. Okay, and so what... Did she actually say in her official censure of Donald Trump? We'll take a look. One, violating the War Powers Resolution and Article 1 of the Constitution by carrying out acts of war without congressional approval. That is a super substantive criticism, and she's right. Two, illegally and unconstitutionally using U.S. military forces to occupy and pillage oil field reserves of Syria, a sovereign nation. Thank you, Tulsi. Thank you for somebody bringing that up. I don't know why more people aren't talking about that. We're just casually jacking, stealing the oil from a sovereign nation. And he admitted it. He said it publicly. Three, recklessly enabling President Erdogan of Turkey to invade and occupy northern Syria and conduct ethnic cleansing of Syrian Kurds. Four, continued support for Saudi Arabia's genocidal war in Yemen that has caused death, suffering, and starvation. Five, recklessly abandoning nuclear agreements and treaties like the INF Treaty with Russia and the Iran Nuclear Agreement, thereby increasing the risk of nuclear war, nuclear proliferation, and war with Iran. So, listen, here's the reason I'm doing this, is because even though I have plenty of disagreements with Tulsi, and I voiced them on the show over and over, it is not fair for the media to act like oh, she's just flat-out pro-Trump for voting president on impeachment. And it's also not fair for Donald Trump to act like, you know, Tulsi is like pro-Trump or whatever. Now, he didn't flat-out say that, but the idea that he was like, oh, I give, you know, I give her respect or whatever for voting president. Like, no. Why don't you look at what else she said and look at what else she did? And this is part of what she did. She censured you, and she did it over very substantive issues. Quite frankly, issues that you could have actually been impeached for 
that would have had a much deeper political impact on you in a negative way, Trump. Because if you're impeached over substantive stuff like the stuff she censured on, well, then your poll numbers might actually be plummeting at the moment. But instead, they picked a really weak angle on you, and, you know, we are where we are now. But I don't think it's fair that the media acts like she's now totally pro-Trump and that Trump is acting, like, soft on her when everybody's just ignoring another part of the picture, which is even though I disagreed with her present vote on impeachment, I do. I don't think that was the right way to go. But even though I did it, I, I do disagree with it. She censured him and was very clear in her criticisms, and that should be talked about a hell of a lot more than it is being talked about, because that's the conversation we should be having. Her criticisms are much stronger than the articles of impeachment. The articles of impeachment are a hell of a lot weaker than the stuff she's hitting him over. So that needs to be said, that needs to be pointed out, and everybody can stop gleefully pretending like, you know, she's wrong about everything now, or she's just a Republican now. That's not true. All right, guys. Have a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I love y'all, and I will see you uh, back here on Monday. No show Thursday, but I'll see you on Monday. Love y'all. Peace.